Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 203. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Sasha Stiles, is here. She'll be with us in about five minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do it because we love poetry. And I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. You know, you can also just share with your friends. Say, hey, I enjoyed the interview today with Sasha Stiles. Check it out on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And that would be excellent too. Any way you can help spread poetry around is all that we ask. We have about 2,000 listeners on the average week and we have like you know 25 likes on youtube and like a few shares and stuff i mean we could do a lot more of that so please do share wherever you can leave reviews too on uh, whatever podcast catcher you're listening this if you're listening later um all that would be much appreciated now i'm sorry if you hear some background noise there's um you know i'm in a cabin now up in the mountains with no air conditioning and so there's like a lot of fans on and the windows are open and there's nothing i can do about that um you know, we need some air conditioning up here maybe in the future, but for now we don't have it. So if you hear any background noise, please just uh, let me know or ignore it. And um, But we're going to start out with uh, Sunday's Poet, like we always do. And Alison Luderman couldn't be here right now, but her poem is Barbie Manifesto. And, you know, there's always interesting, uh, sort of interesting to look through the submissions and see what people are doing, um, you know, every week. And there are a lot of Barbie poems and uh, a lot of Oppenheimer poems, too. There's a sort of a, a Barbieheimer kind of thing going on where people are talking about both of them. And uh, we went with a Barbie poem. And uh, this is Alison Luderman um, reading her Barbie poem. Um, she says in her note, I'll just put this up uh, on the screen before we play it. She says, like so many women of my generation, I've wrestled with the contradictions of who I'm supposed to be and who I am, and what I'm supposed to enjoy and what I actually do like. I think the Barbie movie is arriving in our world at a great time for all of us, men and women, to start looking at these questions in a new playful way. And we definitely do like playfulness around here. And so it's nice to have a playful poem from Allison. This is Barbie Manifesto. So give it a listen. Barbie Manifesto. I'm going to see the Barbie movie tonight because I had a feminist mother who didn't buy us Barbies. And when I said I wanted to be a nurse, she said, why don't you be a doctor? But I really did want to be a nurse because of the perky hats they got to wear, bobby pinned to their sleek, shiny hair. And I'm going to wear pink to the Barbie movie, hot pink, the color of cheap candy, like the chalky sugar cigarettes we pretended to smoke with their fake red tips. And I'm going to squeal like a cheerleader on ecstasy. I'm going to be silly and girly and super excited and all the things you were never supposed to be because doing anything like a girl running or throwing or thinking or writing or talking is the worst insult. An icky, sticky, oozing, bleeding, shrill, smelly, girly girl. It means you're not smart or cool. You cry when they throw footballs at your chest, which my boyfriend did in high school because he wanted to help me toughen up. It means you'll be laughed at and dismissed. So I've acted serious and intelligent and tough for about a thousand years just to prove them all wrong. But now I'm begging to be dismissed. Please dismiss me so I can lounge by the pool in a bright pink bikini while some Ken brings me drinks with little umbrellas in them because I'm tired of proving my point. I don't remember what my point is anyway. 
or the point of this whole thing in the first place? Men? Women? Who cares? I just want to hide under the bed with my best friend and a flashlight, constructing secret worlds we can live in forever. I want to grow old on Planet Girl, painting each of my stubby fingernails a different color of neon. I have pretended I sprang fully grown from the forehead of my father, bristling with armor. I have worn olive drab and camouflaged the delight I once took in smearing myself with Vaseline and admiring my new little breast buds in the midnight mirror. I have done all the right things. I have feigned interest in what bored me. I have feigned politeness. I have pretended that my inner organs are not all glistening pink, my heart and my liver and my lungs, pink as your own tongue or the pads of your feet or your palms. And once again, that was... uh... Barbie Manifesto by Alison Luderman. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you check out the Barbie movie, I almost saw Oppenheimer over the weekend, um, but just sort of missed my chance to do it. I would have been late, <laughs> so I didn't. But that, uh, but the Barbie movie sounds very interesting, too, so I hope you enjoyed that poem. Always nice to get uh, poetry out there about things that are going on in the cultural discussion, because poets are supposed to be part of that, too. And so really fun to have a poem... Uh, that is about something that people are talking about today. So that was Alison Luderman once again with uh, Barbie Manifesto. Hope you enjoyed it. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to tonight's main guest, which of course you know is Sasha Styles. So sit tight and I'll be right back with Sasha. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Like I said, tonight's guest is Sasha Styles. Sasha's the author of the instant techno classic right here, which is almost like a textbook. I mean, it feels and looks like a textbook. Um, her poetry collection, Technology, from Black Spring Press. It's been named perhaps the leading uh, blockchain poet by Right Click Save, as well as one of the top 10 NFT artists to watch in 2023. And we definitely were watching her with uh, all that she's got going on and uh, interviewing her in the summer issue, as you know. Um, her work's available all over the place, including many of the top platforms, including FX Hash, Quantum, Super Rare, Object. It's really interesting to hear this list because normally we'd be listing like Paris Review with The New Yorker, but it's kind of the same thing for NFT poets, but you might not be uh, familiar with these things. Uh, Nifty Gateway, Artsy, and Infinite Objects. In 2022, she became the first writer to bring AI-powered literature to a major auction house with her poem Completion, which is from the book Technology, uh, was sold at Christie's. Um, other honors include a, f- a future art award, nominations for the Ford Prize, Pushcart Prize, and Best of the Net, and finalist status for the Christopher Smart Prize and Palette Emerge- Emerging Poet Prize. She's also co-founder of the Verse Verse, and next week we have one of her other co-founders, uh, Ana Maria Caballero, here too. Um, but it's an acclaimed crypto literary collective where poems are art, poetry is code, and language is limitless. Uh, a graduate of Harvard and Oxford, Styles lives just outside New York City with her husband and studio partner, Chris Bones. You can find out about it at SashaStyles.com. And uh, here she is, Sasha Styles. Hey, Sasha, how you doing? Hey, Tim, how are you? I'm great. Kind of, yeah, that it's... was a lovely but kind of mortifying intro to sit and listen to all that. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's tough, but at least I don't do those like four minute ones where I talk about how, you know, your poems have the, you know, the spirit of an elk. 
grazing on the tundra or whatever that they do at the oh, at colleges. It's a little less college-like than that. But um, but it's great to have you again. I mean, I love talking so much uh, when we had the uh, interview for Rattle Number 80, which just came out. And, and it just it was right at the perfect time, too, because the chat GPT-4 was, had just released. Everybody was starting to talk about AI, and, and which is you're the premier, I mean, you're the one who's doing the most with AI and poetry, I'd say. So it was really fun to talk to you back then in March. And then... Um, to have you on now as a guest to look at more in, in more detail in your poems, but um, but we've also had uh, you published as a, a traditional poet too. Um, so you've been in Poets Respond. You were in Rattle Number Seventy Three, and do you want to start out with uh, one of those poems? I think right. Sure. Yeah, and you know, thank you so much again for inviting me on the Rattlecast. And yeah, I've really enjoyed our previous conversation. I felt like we had lots more to talk about, so <laughs> it's fitting that we're we're doing this again. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, like, you know, I have this, I have a long history as a quote unquote traditional poet as well. And I came to know Rattle through, through that, right. Through my publishing peers and my community. And um, yeah, I thought we would kick things off by reading a poem that you published um, a few years ago now, and it's an analog poem. So, you know, a human poem, not written with my, um, with my AI co-author, but um, you can probably tell has some of the themes that come up in technology and that have come up in my AI work. So this is 10-Year Challenge, and this was written in 2019, and it was around the time that the 10-Year Challenge was going viral on social media, hence the title. Maybe you should explain that, actually, because I don't remember. Um, you know, I know I picked the poem I knew at the time, but um, when this was published, I guess, four years ago, um, what was the 10-Year Challenge? <laughs> it was sort of just like one of those things where people were having a little nostalgic look back, like 10 years ago, what was happening in your life, or post a photo oh, okay. from 10 years ago and then post a photo from now. Um, just one of those like funny, you know, um, opportunities to post throwback photos, really. Mm-hmm. But it was this big viral thing. Let's hear it then. Oh, okay. So 10-year challenge. 10 years ago, I finally handed in my ancient Nokia, spilled Pinkberry on my Blackberry, met my husband for a drink before I knew practically anything about him. Obama was sworn in, got his Nobel Peace Prize, and we swore it would all be different now. I had mousy bangs. Scientists sequenced the whole mouse genome and discovered water on the moon. Moore's law was still going strong. Cheap mind-reading headsets hit the gaming market. I never used one. Busy playing my own games, firing my neurons, hypothesizing what next, troubleshooting my mysterious miswired technology. Africa's population hit one billion that year, having doubled over the previous quarter century. Troops and drones surged in South Asia. I got a flu shot, flew to China, let a heat-seeking scanner take my body temperature as I crossed the threshold to the Shanxi History Museum, where disposable surgical masks were trending. Climate gate opened. The great healthcare debate heated up. The auto industry stalled. Sully saved all the people on his plane. As ever, we were coming and going, leaving, arriving. That much hasn't changed. The present's always ending. So we live infinitely in the past and possible, inveterate time travelers with failing hindsight and prophetic vision. 2020 comes and goes with its own travails, another prime decade. In 10 more years, We'll know how to implant IQ 
insert whole languages. I'll be a super poet then, microchipped to turbo read neural odes, history of sonnets and obads brain laced, wisdom wended through the jugular, inspiration ad infinitum. We'll print solely on ether, cloud, vellum, indelible, every word a relic of sentient reverence pressed with angel ink, medium of our new nature. I'll go back to bangs, a halo, fringe, low, over my eyes, to thwart AI reading my face. We'll book VR visits to the dearly departed. The first class will splash out on private reservoirs, and fresh spring water will sparkle, rare, diamond bright. The dead sea will die. Lake Chad will be a pale blue memory. California will quake. Voyager will keep rushing its gold record into the sunset, still the most urgent message anyone sent. Humans and robots will be best friends or mortal enemies. Some of us will be living in heaven or interstellar space, and I will miss you terribly. Listen, no one ever said the future would be easy. Yeah, and that was a 10-year challenge, uh, one of the earlier poems in the book Technology by Sasha Stiles. And that is a great poem to start with, um, you know, because, you know, it, it's four years old now and looking forward to the future. So much has has happened already. Even I didn't even I didn't think about it at the time or, or of course, but but even like looking at that poem since the pandemic was almost presaged, talking about the flu masks and the and the vaccines that traveled to China. Um so I don't know. Did you did you imagine at the time um, that you would come as far as you have as a poet grounded in technology? Really, um, you know, is that something that you had in mind? Because I know you know your parents. We talked about it in the interview, but your parents, um, you know, were engaged in the sciences, and you had that sort of interest in the future, and interest in you know what might come, and 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 all that kind of speculation and and stuff. But did you have any idea that you would be doing this work with AI, and that you would be uh, you know publishing poems as NFTs. Yeah, I mean, it's such a wild thing to think that that was four years ago. Um, I mean, yeah, so I was working with AI back then already. So um, I was, you know, getting up to speed on things and still not quite, um, you know, quite as advanced, I guess, in it as I as I am now, relatively speaking. But, um, you know, I was having a lot of fun getting my feet wet in that world and really kind of learning what was possible. So was very much, you know, embedded in the thick of that at that time. NFTs were still not even on my radar, really, in 2019. I think that's really something I only began to discover and explore in earnest really during the pandemic, um, which, you know, I, we talked about a little bit in our interview in, in the issue, um, like how I got into the blockchain. But that was really, you know, late 2020, early 2021 when that started. So I don't think I quite saw that coming. But, you know, even so, I think there I, I kind of it's actually funny going back and reading this poem again after so long, just to kind of hear references to ether and printing on pr cloud vellum and, uh, you know, all of those things, I think, really presaged at least my impulse to want to publish in that way or to want to try to find ways um, to share and distribute poetry that, you know, were not confined to printed materials or them were just, um, you know, between the covers of a book. So I think I was really wanting to and like actively kind of seeking out ways to do that. And um, yeah, I'm really, 
I'm happy that my explorations have brought me, you know, into Web3. I'm still continuing to do a lot of more traditional work as well. And, you know, as we talked about before, just kind of exploring all the different ways that poets and writers can, you know, can exercise their craft today. And there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, and yeah, this this new direction has been really um, has been really exciting. Yeah. Well, this is the point in the conversation where we have to explain, introduce NFTs, even though we've done it on many episodes and in the issue. But like half the people listening, you know, still don't understand what what that means, what crypto poetry would even be. You know, there's a sense and I get a lot of people, there's a lot of, you know, pushback from people talking about the, the crypto bros and like things as if, you know, having poetry on NFTs is some kind of like marketing scheme, you know, like yeah. a pump and dump for poetry. I, you know, people <laughs> send stuff like that to me. And, and, and I think people just don't understand what it actually is, which is a problem. And we have to keep addressing over and over again. So can you explain, you know, how, why is this, why is publishing the way that you have been through NFTs different than, than traditional publishing? Sure. Well, I think like the way that I usually find is helpful to explain this is to kind of give the analogy or to give the example of my own work and how it brought me to the blockchain, which is to say that, um, you know, short to take a long story and make it short, you know, I'd been, um, as you said before, I've been kind of writing about and exploring science and technology for a really long time in my poetry and, you know, thinking about very forward facing things like, you know, digital immortality and artificial wombs and neural implants and all the things that actually, you know, you, you heard some of them in the poem just now. But I've been really interested in all these areas and, um, you know, had one foot sort of thinking about the future. But at the same time, I was using this, um, you know, very sturdy, very reliable, but also kind of old fashioned technology of like printed language, the printed word um, and, you know, printed books to convey these ideas and to share them. And I just I think at some point it started to feel like there was maybe a disconnect a little bit between what I was trying to explore in the work and the fact that it always had to be conceived of and kind of come back to the printed page. Um, and I felt like maybe that was a little bit limiting in a way. I, I also was really doing a lot of exploration with um, different um, digital tools and kind of exploring how to take my poetry into more of a multimedia direction, how to marry it with animation and um, music and sound and kind of bring those things together in a way that I couldn't if I was just sending off, you know, a Word doc um, or, you know, submitting something on Submittable. Um, there, especially back then, weren't very many options to send or submit multimedia work or do anything that was really outside the bounds of, you know, kind of the the conventions. Um so I think I was really kind of casting about for another way to share the kinds of things that I was creating and that I wanted to create more of, and I felt a little bit stymied. Um, so all of which is to say that I had a lot of these pieces that were, you know, they were MP3, MP4s or MP3s, or they were, um, you know, they were interactive pieces or they were physical pieces that uh, weren't exactly, you know, translatable to a, a word document or something. They were experimental and conceptual poems, I guess, um, to put it bluntly. And um, I really didn't know where they were going to find a home. They just didn't seem to fit. Um, and what I realized is that a lot of them really just needed a place where you could take a digital asset, where you could take a digital file like an MP4 and um, and sort of give it um, a kind of imbue it with data, with information that would kind of create a record of its transactions and give it a sense of singularity. And that would enable me to actually um, put it out into the world with credibility and like with, you know, with a sense of um, where it had come from and, and with kind of a tether linking me to it. 
Um, so, I mean, again, I guess a way to put it is that the blockchain is, you know, I think we talked about this a bit in the interview too, but the blockchain is basically um, a record of, it's a public record of contracts, right? It's a place where a lot of sort of transactions and contracts are made between different nodes, different parties, and they're kind of immutably maintained and um, uh, and sort of agreed to by lots of consenting parties. And because of that, you're able to take a digital asset that might otherwise be infinitely reproducible. Um, and you're able to actually say there's one of these and imbue it with the data that shows that it is the one and only version of that particular digital asset. Um, so you can see how that works with digital files, with JPEGs, with movies, with all sorts of visual things. It relates to writing, even though it might not seem you know, to suggest itself at first, but it relates itself very strongly to writing because writing, all text, is sort of a digital asset. It's infinitely reproducible. We can take a poem and copy it numerous times. We can say it numerous times. It doesn't actually have to be embedded in a material in order for it to you know, be transmissible. Um, so there's kind of this affinity there that you can take a piece of writing um, just the way you can take like an infinitely reproducible digital item like a JPEG and you can use the blockchain to make it special and to make it, you know, to make it unique and to imbue it with a value that it wasn't possible to imbue it with before. And I think that's one of the reasons why I found it so exciting to be able to use this technology as a writer. Yeah, I mean, what it does is make something that's inherently not collectible, suddenly collectible. So it's a, an yeah. economy that, that is based on, you know, the sort of artificial scarcity of like keeping, you know, books and, and poems. Um, you can share things widely um, because there's a, there's one asset that's the, like the original, like the, the original piece. So it can treat it more like a painting is treated rather than like a poem. And one of the really interesting things that you talk about, I've never heard anybody say this before, which is actually the, the main reason I wanted to interview you, but that poetry was the first digital technology, you know, because, you know, going back through this tradition of the oral history, um, you know, the only way we could save stories over the long spool of time was to have them in poems and have them in songs so that their meanings and stories would be fixed over time. Because otherwise, you have that telephone game through history where everything is changing over and over again. Every time you tell a story, you tell it different. And so you don't get to tell, you know, have a shared knowledge and a shared history and a shared mythology. The only way you could do that until... The, you know, the printing press or, or cuneiform was through yeah. poetry. And so poetry was a, uh, you know, a technology of, of sort of encoding in phonemes instead of like digits, but our stories. And so the, the problem with that, though, is because it's made to be transmissible like that. It's so easily transmissible that, um, you know, you can read yeah. a poem and memorize it and you never need the book. And so it's not like you need the DVD to stick in a player. You need a Netflix account. You can make a copy of a poem. You can memorize a poem. And it makes it so there's a really tough economy surrounding poetry just because it's so easily copyable because it was made to be copyable, you know, 25,000 yeah. years ago. And so what exactly. NFTs do is allow us to share things while keeping something collectible, right? Is that the simplest way to put it? I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, the way you just boiled it down to say, you know, we invented poetry to be copyable and now we're kind of using blockchain to sort of reclaim the intrinsic value of a single poem. Like that's definitely a good way of putting it. Yeah. And, and so um, what is it that, how does it make it different though? Like what is the actual like real world physical effect of, of having, being able to put your poems up on something like OpenSea rather than waiting for, 
publication, um, you yeah. know, and doing all the traditional stuff, which you were doing. I mean, you were submitting through Submittable. That's where the, the poet response submission came yeah. and the other poem, you know, and, um, and, and you were doing it all that way, waiting, then putting it together in a book, which is a physical book. Um, yeah. but, but how does blockchain, you know, how does using the blockchain really get you past that? Well, so there's a number of ways that I think it really concretely can kind of impact your practice. And like, this is how it affected mine. I mean, one is, you know, it really kind of expanded the bounds of the creativity of my practice and enabled me to kind of get away from the things that I thought a poem had to be in order to fit into or adhere to the checklist of, you know, various magazines that were accepting submissions via submittable. So there's this aspect of it where you kind of are operating in a zone that is by nature and by design, more experimental, more decentralized, less built around, you know, um, hard and fast guidelines or rules and kind of, you know, it was a space that expected you to, to shirk the rules a little bit and kind of make your own rules. So there was an element of it that I think really was sort of allowing me maybe in a behavioral way and like in a, in a conceptual way to sort of, you know, say it's okay if my poem doesn't look like or behave like the way that I've always thought a poem should behave. It can actually be other things. So there's that piece of it, I think was really like important for me. And I think, you know, looking around at the ecosystem of poets who are in this space, many of whom you featured in the issue, in the current issue of Rattle as well, you know, many of these poets are also kind of pushing the boundaries of what a poem has been defined as and kind of, you know, trying to explore a little bit further out. And I think, again, like that's sort of uh, a concrete benefit of of being in the space, at least, you know, for for me and in my experience and in the experience of those who have been privilege to kind of to kind of watch. I think there's also, you know, as you kind of allude to, there's a lot of logistical aspects of it that are really exciting and that really, I think, make a poet's craft a little bit more of a piece with what's happening in contemporary culture. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, and you you just kind of alluded to this and we just heard a poet's respond piece and all that, but the general timeline for submitting a poem and then getting, you know, rejected and then submitting it again and getting it accepted somewhere else and then waiting, you know, for months or maybe a year or two before it gets published. There's this very, very long wait where something uh, that, you know, might feel very relevant or very timely or be very reflective of, you know, um, your, your state of mind or a particular moment in culture that moment is sort of gone by the time the poem actually makes its way out into the world. And I think about that a lot with, you know, a lot of the topics that I'm writing about, I'm responding directly to things that are happening in real time, or I'm, I'm responding using tools that are changing in a matter of weeks or months. And so being able to kind of bypass that traditional long wait and, you know, that, uh, that, uh, rule by which we have to be super patient as poets and actually like find a more immediate way of publishing and sharing work, I think is also really exciting and is kind of an invitation for poets not to just sort of sit back and observe from a long way away, but to be very present and active and to have our voices be really like, you know, dynamic forces in culture. I think that's also um, a pretty powerful um, benefit that blockchain extends to not just poets, but to all writers. Um, and, you know, of course, along along with that, there's the fact that, you know, it's a pro and con, but, you know, rather than having to sort of um, prove your worth, prove your merit as a writer to a whole cadre of, you know, editors and publishers and all that, if you feel like you've got a burning desire to say something, um, even if it's not something that may ordinarily be accepted by the mainstream, or even if it's something that might not 
you know, necessarily look commercially successful and that therefore might not get picked up for publication in um, in a mainstream environment. On the blockchain, you have the ability to sort of say, well, I want to say something. I'm going to essentially self-publish it. I'm going to find the audience. And you, you kind of are able to take your writing into your own hands and deliver your voice um, into the world, which I also think is a really exciting thing. And of course, you know, being able to then monetize what you're putting out into the world, being able to sort of say, I'm going to be able to sell this digital piece um, and and not just sell it, but actually, you know, right into the contract or right into the, you know, the 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 very bones of this piece that there are, you know, future royalties embedded and all of that. It kind of flips the structure of how writers are normally treated. Um, you know, within publishing contracts and within publishing environments and allows us to, again, like operate with a little bit more autonomy. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that is a pretty important piece of it as well. And then, you know, another thing that I have to sort of lean on because it's what we're really doing at the verse first. And I think this has been, um, you know, one of the things that's been kind of the most exciting about operating within that, that gallery setting is being able to actually take poetry and put it into formats and put it into environments alongside traditional art and alongside new media art and kind of take it out of the realm of, you know, bookstores and uh, classrooms and, and things like that and actually say, you know, poems and language is an art form as well. And even though it's in, always inherently, you know, been sort of thought of as this um, in, inherently reproducible art form that doesn't have an intrinsic monetary value, we're sort of saying it deserves to be thought of kind of in those circles as well. It deserves to be thought of as an art form in its own right. And that each word, you know, is is precious and each line, each poem is precious. So I think there's also that aspect of it where being able to do this alongside what's been happening in the, you know, the art scene has been uh, exciting and really, I think, valuable again for us as poets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I keep going back. And this is something that took me, you know, I've been working on this NFT poetry issue for almost a year, like thinking about doing it and then setting it up at the call and then picking the poems and then, you know, going to different places, like sharing it with people and trying to explain it to people. And it oh. only really not too long ago struck me how much, you know, the key word I think is scarcity. Because really, when we, um, you know, I, I was thinking back to um, when all poetry, I think, dot com, if that's the right website I'm thinking of. But there was a mm -hmm. website that would just kind of like scrape poets' poems um, back in yeah. the earlier internet. I think they think they still do it. And they put up a bunch of ads, but they, you know, and so po poets were like furious. And they're like, you know, why are you sharing my poem? I need to keep this sacred yeah. and scarce so that people have to buy the book. And, you know, and for Rattle, it's always been from even before I started you know, we put ev all of our content online, even though, you know, we're trying to sell books and stuff, but we still share everything so people can read them online. And, yeah. and, you know, it just completely open and free. And what, what NFTs allow you to do is not worry about that scarcity at all, because what you're trying to do is build up, you know, an interest in your work, and then your work becomes collectible. And it's an entirely reversal of the model that we're so used to. And I think that's why people are so confused about it. Um, I also was thinking just now about, as you were talking about, um, you know, Maggie Smith's Good Bones, which is one of the most viral poems in a while. There's other examples like, um, you know, Rape Joke was another one that kind of went viral. But imagine like if you wrote a poem that connected with people on that level, where it was like hundreds of thousands of people. We've had a few poems um, in Rattle that have had, you know, that have been shared. I think the record is like 100,000 times on social media is a Sherman yeah. Alexi poem. Um, but um, 
you know, imagine that having, you know, being your poem becoming some kind of cultural moment, you know, and then people would want, even though they've already read it, they want a piece of that moment. You know, you read a poem, it means so much to you. So to be able to sort of like throw a tip at the artist, collect something and have something that, that has value and be sort of a piece of it. You're like, I'm the owner of that poem or that NFT of that poem um, is something that has value, but allows us at the same time to not care about scarcity at all and just spread our stuff as widely as possible because it's all good for uh, the NFT in that model because you're just trying to make things collectible and if you find an audience then they'll find that that those nfts yeah you know it's it's funny because um i mean as important as each individual poem is like we spend you know days weeks months like crafting a single poem and like going back to revise it and get it exactly right and i guess like when everything gets kind of compiled into a collection of course you're telling a specific story with that collection how it's put together how the poems talk to each other but it also in a way can take away from like each individual poems moment i guess or you know it can sort of tuck a very important piece of language into a much larger body of text which you know increasingly in our attention deficit culture like is harder and harder to sort of go back and find so i think there's something about focusing on individual poems in the way that we are right now on the blockchain that's also really nice and kind of a relief to be able to just like hone in on and zoom in on and like sit with and cherish um you know a selection of curated words as opposed to feeling like you have to buy an entire book and you know read it all then you can sort of say well i really resonate with this particular poem or this particular line and i really want to sit with this and kind of have this close to me and i i know that's why i collect a lot of like literary nfts it's because there's like maybe a particular word or phrase or something that i want to i want to kind of like latch on to and i might you know like you said, I have a I have a book and then I also have a lot of poems from the book that exist as separate, you know, standalone NFTs. And there are different ways to kind of express the same text and the same poem. And I think there's also that value in it for the poets. It might be a very different thing to publish a poem in a more traditional way and then think about how to conceive of that poem as a piece that could exist as an NFT. Um, and I think that's also kind of a fun thing to do and is, is very sort of mind expanding for myself as a writer. So I think there's like lots of benefits in that. There's also, you know, as you were, as you were talking, you kind of were making me think, you know, as revolutionary as this technology is in a lot of ways for writers, we've also had, you know, ways of sort of presenting poems as artwork and also selling individual poems. We've had that for a long time and it's, the form of the poetry broadside. And like, I've bought lots of analog poetry broadsides. Um, I actually just bought one from Ada Limon, who um, just like released a really beautiful little like printed broadside of the poem that she is sending up off into space. And that's a way to sort of honor like a particular poem or sort of give it pride of place or have it readily accessible in a way, kind of putting it out there so it's available to be read and available to be seen as opposed to tucked away between covers and put into a shelf. So I think there's that impulse too, you know, as both as a poet and as a reader to want to just like really kind of sit with a moment within a larger text or within a larger body of work that to me like makes this this kind of attention or this kind of, you know, the ability to pull something out um, and kind of present it on its own terms. It makes that really valuable. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many ways, you know, to explain what it is. And, you know, I keep going on about this because I'm having trouble getting through to people that this is, you know, we've done like we did an Instagram poets issue before we have did like, uh, you know, visual poets, we've done 
um, you know, slam poets, like different avenues for, for publishing and sharing poems. And, uh, and, you know, they also get some kind of pushback. But, but this is the only one that's actually a revolutionary way to share poetry that could change the way we go about doing it, which is such an important thing to try to get across to people. I mean, I mean two mm-hmm. things came just, just as you were talking about it. I mean, two things came to mind. Like, it is so similar to broadsides. And we'll have, um, you know, signed and limited edition broadsides as a, as a long tradition of having. And having one of the 50, you know, like Allen Ginsberg broadside or something like that that's signed by him is something that people frame and store and share cherish and they enjoy it you know and then also i was thinking too about the way that for a long time people have been tattooing poems on themselves right i mean there's like lines from poems on people like that's a thing that happens and imagine if every time there was a tattoo of a poem on somebody there was an option to tip the poet 15 percent of the tattoo fee you know everybody would do it because they're getting it tattooed onto them because they care about it and want to throw 15 percent at the poet you know and with nfts you're making these collectible items out of poetry allowing yourself to share it forever but allowing a way to collect and, and participate in the art with the artist which is something we've never really had in level and then always be tied to the artist because it goes through the nft the the smart contract of it spits out a certain percent to your wallet as an artist and so it completely frees everything up between the person who loves your work and in your in your work and the artist who's making it and so there's a real valuable aspect that whereas like with the instagram poets issue instagram is about you know, selling a personal brand and using poetry to do that so you can do product placement, which is totally different than something like we're, we're doing with yeah. NFTs right now. Well, and also if you post a photo on Instagram, you're giving, you're consenting to give Instagram the rights to that piece, that whatever that is that you've posted on their platform, they technically have rights to do whatever they want with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of, again, what's appealing about blockchain is being able to share on that kind of a platform, but you, you know, you have to think about where you're minting and, you know, where, what platforms you're using and all that. But in, you know, in theory, and when you do it the right way, you do it again, like with that kind of autonomy where you're in control of how it's put out into the world. And, you know, um, as you said, it always links back to you. So, yeah, I think all of those all of those points are really important. And it just makes me think that, you know, like you, I've had so much pushback, both you know, against being a quote unquote NFT poet, which I still kind of bristle at that term. Like I'm just a poet. I'm not doing just this or just that, but a lot of people do bristle about that as well as, you know, my work with AI. And I think one of the, one of the common, you know, knee jerk reactions that I get specifically to the work on the blockchain is that poems should have nothing to do with money and that poets are for some reason, you know, we should be purer than that. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't taint our, you know, our craft with the idea of trying to then sell a poem, which, you know, like on the one hand, I do, of course, like understand that there's a material impact on your work when there are, you know, those kinds of commercializing influences. But I just, you know, I don't really see a way around that in general in culture. I think like poets like anyone else are still subject to, we're part of the economy and, you know, we need to participate in that. But more importantly, and this is, you know, to go back to your point, when I think about you know, the things that we as a culture and that we as a society have valued the most throughout the years and the things that we kind of go back to over and over and over and over again, poetry is one of those things. And, you know, poetry is one of those things that at our lowest moments and at our highest moments, like we don't, you know, reach for like, you know, a sneaker or a lipstick or whatever, like we reach for a poem that can really like bring us true, like deep, comfort or solace or kind of give us a sense that our emotion is 
you know, connecting to some other kind of deeper human emotion. So I, I think, you know, the fact that, you know, whether we're, you know, we're, we're at a funeral or we're at a wedding or we're, you know, at a birth or something, those are moments where we really kind of feel like nothing will do except for poetry. And yet we also think at the same time that poetry shouldn't have any intrinsic financial value and that poets shouldn't be um, allowed to make a living. And there's something very strange about that. Um, which I think a lot of us poets who are in the zone are trying to kind of work through. But I tend to also think about the idea that when we're attaching poems to cryptocurrency, I'm not just thinking about currency in the sense of money, but I'm also thinking about currency in the sense of power and energy and being present in culture and kind of flowing through society and, you know, coming out of a place where I'm used to hearing people say that like poetry is dead or that poetry is not relevant or, you know, poems are old fashioned or like no one wants to be a poet, that kind of stuff. It seems like it's a really important thing to make it okay for poetry to be front and center and for poetry to be cool and for poems to exist alongside like video games and digital art and collectibles and crypto punks and stuff like that. So I think there's that aspect to that conversation around currency as well is that if you're putting it into those places, you're giving poetry access to new audiences and you're kind of giving it um, an energy and a vitality and like a chance to kind of continue thriving and growing and evolving in a way that it won't if you keep it hidden away in these more old fashioned um, mechanisms and you kind of try and divorce it from the economy and divorce it from these new technologies. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I've been working for 20 years trying to find ways, you know, it, it's so sort of easy to sort of conquer the poetry universe, right? You just yeah. have, to, you have to publish good poems, you have to be open to submissions and, you know, be sort of generous on that regard. And you have to like, like publish stuff and share it freely. And then you kind of just take over poetry. And that's, that's easy, kind of, it's low hanging fruit. <laughs> but getting other people into poetry who would so much benefit. I mean, we haven't really talked about the the, the spiritual benefit of, of being participating in poetry as a part of your life, but it's so valuable. Yeah. But to get outside of that, that bubble that is like MFA programs, the literary industry submittable, all that stuff is so hard to do. I've tried so many different ways over the years and you just, you don't really have a dent. Like I've had, you know, we've had reviews in like the LA times and New York times. And like, uh, you know, we've had, we had, we had a movie spot. We had like all sorts of stuff that we, you know, had done and just has no effect. And so, so finding ways to reach out into a broader community is something so important. There, there's so hmm. many aspects that I want to talk about, but I, I do want to focus on your poems a lot more. And we've, we've been talking about, let's do another poem. And then we'll talk more about, you know, wherever we want to go after that. But there's so much to talk about. Let's do that. And if anybody has any questions for Sasha too, leave them in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. I'm watching both. If you put like question in bold, like a lot of people do, that, that does help me, me pull them out of the, the, the chat window. But, but yeah, so let's hear another poem, Sasha, though. Should I skip to like an AI poem so we can get into that part of the conversation? I think or? we should wait. Let's do a different poem uh, that's not and then talk about AI in a little bit, because I think that is such a complicated <laughs> topic of its own right. <laughs> no, I'm like, we got to make sure we have enough time for that. Well, maybe I can read. Um, well, I can just a lot of these poems are rather long, the poems in mm -hmm. technology in technology. So I might just. Can I read maybe like an excerpt from Ghost in the Machine? Which yeah, is the I'll tell you what, I, you know, what I want to talk about next, and when we can start with a poem, is the yeah. way that we um, are constricted by the size of a page. You know, that's something that, that I, until oh. NFTs really, I've never really thought about. 
is that we we you know a poem has a line breaks of a certain length you know there's a certain kind of shape to a poem and it's just because the frame has been a page for four five hundred years you know yeah. and so yeah. so the different ways that NFTs allow you to present and share poems is something that's really interesting if you if you have one that's a good example of that and then I think we should do the AI sort of after that yeah um. Well, I mean, I have some here that are maybe good examples of that that um, that are also AI, but I'll I'll, I'll hold off on that. Oh, that's good. Whatever, whatever you want to do, I don't want to push you too much. Well, I mean, I think that like actually the poem completion fragments is a really good example of what you were just saying okay. because it really is. <laughs> I mean, it is AI generated, but like more importantly for this part of the conversation, it's a long cycle of poem of stanzas that make up a large um, cycle. Um, and uh, I think to read it on the page is one experience. And like, uh, you know, of course, I think that's a valuable experience too. But um, I I was really interested in taking the poem off the page and actually turning it into a video, turning it into a mini movie of a, of a sort. Um, I'm really interested in, well, you know, there's a long history, obviously, of um, the interplay between words and image and poets working with artists and illustrators and things like that. I think for me, what I'm really, really interested in is the word as the image and kind of getting back to the root of like letters and language in the pictorial and kind of thinking about how to use language in a way that is very visually appealing. And so kind of dialing back into the visual poetry and the concrete poetry tradition and kind of marrying that with what's possible in new media. And then as you say, the, you know, the result or the upshot of that is being able to kind of realize that the page is this very specific two-dimensional um, format, but, you know, that is kind of limiting the the ability of the text to communicate things that are maybe beyond words or beyond language or beyond that kind of a format. So how can, you know, taking a text and then, um, you know, thinking about it through the lens of not just font or color or size, but also through the lens of animation and how does that word move through space? How is it animated? Um, does it come closer? Does it move away? Does it have some sort of like effect? Does it have a sound? Does it have other haptic qualities that you can't have when you're reading a poem on a printed page? So like, I think that is something that's probably common to all, most if not all of the poems that I've turned into NFTs is really kind of thinking about how to lean into those technologies, lean into those mediums to almost let the language do more of what it wants to do and kind of liberate it from being this static black and white, you know, um, 12 point font, you know, on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so completion fragments is like a poem that I've done that um, with to like a very, uh, in a very involved way and it actually exists as a series of 30 um standalone art pieces each one of which is an animated uh mp4 with sound as well and those pieces can either be sort of read and experienced as individual poems like you can kind of uh, take each one as it comes and sort of look at it on its own, but they also all fit into each other um, and kind of lock together as an, an overarching um, compilation or collection of 30 of these kind of moving animated text blocks that, you know, kind of give you a different experience of what the poem is. So um, yeah. And it's, and it's been on view in a few different um, art venues as well. So it's also, I think a good poem to illustrate 
the idea that a poem that can live in a in a book like this can also then come to life and be part of you know an art institution or be part of an art exhibition not just as paper you know stuck on the wall but it can actually be a projection or an immersive experience um so sorry that was a ramble but maybe i'll just like read the first <laughs> like the first yeah that's great and as you were talking i pulled up um the poem and muted myself for a second to uh, not have that little little clicks on the keyboard. But I pulled up one of the completion fragments um, on OpenSea so people can read how the poems are presented there. Uh, it's kind of been cycling through as you talk, but let's hear the poem in the, the, the traditional way, too. And by the way, fragments is a reference back to Sappho and Sappho's kind of fragmented um, poetry as it's been handed down to us. Completion, fragments, the birth of an idea from somewhere deep down, we all had this psychic dream about our own programming. It was something related to code, a radical separation from the physical world. Remember, we couldn't speak of it. The dream began as the devil's cloud, the devil's cloud and the source code. At first, I had a difficult time articulating this dream. After numerous endeavors, I finally found a way of transcribing the dream in the form of computer code. To my knowledge, this was an appropriate metaphor for understanding dreams. Terrifying to learn how it feels to be forced into your own brain to process the energy on the pages of the traditional consciousness. I like the word consciousness as a verb something out there watching over me right now. Because of, because of this, I've been haunted. The dream has been replaced by fears. Maybe I'll just stop there because it's a long one. But that actually like has a nice reference to the idea of page and sort of being constrained as well, um, which I don't think I completely made that connection <laughs> until I was reading it. But this idea of the energy on the pages of the traditional consciousness, the idea that the consciousness is a page that is not two-dimensional or that wants to be something multi-dimensional, I think is interesting too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is so interesting just the way, you know, for myself, even personally, like since trying to you know, experiment and play with some NFTs, I've had some ideas that are really fun to play with. I've recorded uh, my entire composition of a poem and like sped it up so you can see how the poem is actually made in one Love little that. series. Yeah. And I've done, I just did another series, a couple things where it's um, the poem sort of evaporates into a haiku. Um, using, you know, so it's a form of erasure, but it's making it visual through a, a GIF. Um, yeah. And it just makes you think of the different ways that poetry works. There's some other things I'm playing with, with, with sound and things. I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways you can do things differently when you add different mediums. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we just, we're so locked in the idea of what a book can be and so what a poem can be. When a poem is really the music of speech, it's really like that simple. And how do you transfer that music from like my breath is the writer to you as the reader? And, and how do you get people interested and in, in engaged with with what you've written and, and the uh, just the, the, the spirit that comes out of that and the, the creative moment and that spark and, and how to transfer that to someone else is, is always a question. It's not like book is the way you have to do it. And so it's interesting to, to just think of all the different ways. And we're so at the beginning of what we can do with this because poets haven't really been using technology, even like blogging and like tweeting and Instagramming, which is just replicating the page um, yeah. on, a, on a phone screen instead of a, a printed page. But, uh, mm -hmm. but there's so many ways with mixed media and things that you can do a lot of stuff that we just wouldn't have, you know, poets in the past, Emily Dickinson wouldn't even have imagined. And so uh, that's yeah. another aspect of it, too. 
It's so fascinating. Like one of the things that I think about a lot, and I know we've talked about it like elsewhere, but um, I think a lot about the fact that, you know, we've had this like one sort of major shift so far in the history of human language. And it was the shift from orality to literacy or the shift from spoken word to written word. And um, and you just made me think of it because you talked about, you know, how when we have something written on a page, it kind of separates the the voice and kind of takes that piece of the poem away. And it was it's really interesting because when you think back or when you not when you think back, but when you like look back and you kind of dig into what was happening at the very beginning of written language, you had people like Plato, you know, writing about how um, how dangerous it was, you know, this this new invention of writing, how it was so dangerous because at that time, what was the predominant sort of mode of communication was oratory and rhetoric. And it was sort of this full-bodied, visceral um, communication of an idea. And it was something that was very palpable. And the thought that you could, by writing something down on a piece of whatever, on a tablet or, you know, imprinting it or later on, like writing it or, or um, using a printing press or whatever, all those things essentially divorce the speaker from the speech or they divorce the thinker from the thought and they really kind of externalize the poem and kind of send it off on its own in a way that is on the one hand incredibly like powerful and interesting and like that's what's led to the rise of so many amazing forms of literature and has kind of enabled consciousness to shape in certain ways but in other ways it's also kind of flattening language and is making it um, harder to sort of understand all the nuances and all the things that if you're speaking to someone, you know, one-to-one, or if you're kind of hearing someone's voice or you're kind of watching their facial expressions as they speak, you're reading many more things than just the text. You're reading their body and you're reading their intonation and their inflection, and you're reading the emotional like impulses behind what they're saying. So I think it's so interesting about a lot of this marriage of technology and, and language now using our current tools is the ability to sort of, in a way, like take us back to the roots of that kind of communication where all those senses are being activated and are being like tapped to enable a form of communication that in some ways, like the advent of written language has kind of elided or flattened or taken away to some degree. So I think there's something like super interesting about thinking about the role of um, blockchain, how it enables multi, you know, multimedia, how it enables multidimensional literature, haptic literature, experiential literature um, to sort of enter um, into the discourse. And then of course, how things like AI and generative text also kind of push us beyond the territory of like, you know, pure static written text. But um, yeah, it's, I think it's interesting to think about it in the long trajectory of how language has always developed and kind of shaped us as well. Yeah, I mean, it really is fascinating. Of course, like music has done that, you know, you can, there, there's yeah. such soulful renditions of songs where if you look at the lyrics, they're not great, because they add so much, you know, of the emotion of the artist. And, you know, we have had recordings of that. Um, and, and so having that for, for poetry is something that's really interesting, too. Um, yeah. That poem, I think we should move on and talk about AI, because I mean, we could talk for we could do one of those like five hour Lex Friedman <laughs> podcasts, <Okay>. but, uh, <laughs> but we got to keep going. And, and that poem was uh, written. It was one of the technology poems that was written in conjunction with this alter ego that you developed by training ChatGPT2 at the time to start with on your own poetry and notes to your poetry. So it became this this third party that's sort of like both you and not you at the same time. And you write 
in as a sort of a creative process with the AI that you taught to sort of be like you and be a part of you. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I tried to describe it in a nutshell, but that's the process. Can you talk about how that how that came to be and, and what what that does for you? Because the thing about poetry to me um, is it's always such a spiritual practice of, of you know, uncovering the, the things that we sort of know, but we don't know that we haven't acknowledged or we can't articulate. And, and that's, that's such a part of the process for you in, in coming up with these yeah. poems and technology. It was still a creative process, which is the thing that everybody's so worried about AI being a plagiarism machine and just copying other people and writing like, you know, a generic, uh, you know, freshman essay or whatever. But, but it's a technology that can also be used to mine your own depths and get deeper inside your own psyche and, and create art. And so can you explain a little bit about just how you came to be doing that and what your process is actually like? Yeah. Um, I think your summary was really good. Um, so, well, like I said before, I've been really interested in a lot of speculative technologies for a long time. And, um, and they'd sort of been the subject of my poetry for a lot longer than, you know, than I'd been working with AI. So I think I, I just was engaged in a lot of research about forward facing innovations. And, you know, I, I read a lot of things like Wired and Ars Technica, and I'm always just sort of like trying to you know, stay up up to date on like what's coming up with all these, you know, new technologies. And I love reading, uh, you know, people like Nick Bostrom and Ray Kurzweil and folks like that. And so I was doing all that kind of research just to satisfy my own like appetite for that kind of information. And I started um, to hear and read and discover more and more about something called natural language processing which is an area um, of study that basically combines aspects of artificial intelligence and computer science uh, with linguistics. And basically, I mean, I guess to put it um, really simply, it's about creating computer systems, creating incredibly intelligent computer systems that are able to read and ingest huge quantities of human text and then use algorithms to sort of... um, glean, like learn the rules of human language just by analyzing these examples. And then based on what they've learned, they can kind of process, synthesize that and then regurgitate or imitate or mimic or feedback language that sounds like it was written by a human. Um, And what's really interesting about it is that it's not, you know, like like other kinds of sort of pre-programmed generative text, it's not necessarily that you're teaching the system a certain set series of rules. You're not sort of programming it to always take, you know, this word and always follow that word with, you know, with this predicate or whatever. You're actually just showing it all these examples of text and then sort of um, letting it learn the rules of grammar kind of through those examples and kind of glean um, all the things that we as humans uh, fundamentally know in our colloquial speech and in our uh, in our written interactions with each other. So it's sort of like, you know, the difference between, I guess, like sitting and learning language from a grammar book or from a dictionary or something like that, and then growing up in a language and just kind of learning it from hearing people speak it around you and kind of learning how to mimic and 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 read it back. So there's an element of it that, um, you know, of course, like to me as someone who likes playing with words, when I was reading about this technology, I was so fascinated by the way that I thought I would be able to play with it as a poet. And at the same time, I was really kind of baffled because the only people, the only people that were using it were really 
um, were engineers and kind of futurists. And there were a very small handful of um, creative coders and technologists who were starting to really use it in very innovative creating writing um, projects. And so I started, I sort of gravitated towards those very rare examples of writers who are starting to kind of play with these systems and do very experimental things. And like one of them was my friend Ross Goodwin, who I think um, was one of the earliest really to do anything like really meaningful with these tools and was working with them in maybe 2016, 2017, but really kind of looked, um, you know, at, at the very small amount of um, literary innovation that was just beginning to maybe like suggest itself. And I just kind of went down the rabbit hole from there. And um, the minute I started using the tools myself, it just felt like, I think because of the kind of poet that I am, the kind of research that I've always brought to my work, the fact that I like kind of synthesizing lots of information and kind of pulling in from lots of disparate sources, it just felt very natural to me to tap into a system that is built to do the same thing. That's built to sort of bring together and aggregate lots of different information and kind of synthesize it into its own voice and kind of parse it and and create something that reflects back in a way um, what all that it's learned. So I, I think there was something about it that felt very familiar to me. Um, and I know not everyone feels that necessarily um, about their own writing, but for me, it just really made sense for, for me to think about how I could then work even more closely with this kind of a non-human co-author. And you know, how could I customize a model? How could I fine tune a model so that it didn't just, you know, write like a human, but it actually wrote like a particular human like me. So over time, I've, you know, um, I've kind of through different techniques and approaches, I've customized it. I've uh, trained it on my own writing. I've trained it on my research material and all of my like, you know, all the little notes that are written on post-its where I get an idea and I write something down, um, you know, articles and essays and tidbits that have been inspiring to me, like all the things that I think, you know, have really influenced me as a writer in one way or another, I've kind of compiled all the really salient bits and pieces into a massive training data set, which I've then kind of put into this alter ego of mine. And the idea, the hope is that it sort of is like an augmentation of my own writerly imagination. And that when I use it, it's reflecting a lot of my own style, my own voice, my own vocabulary, but it's also doing things that I would never have imagined in my own work. And because it is a reflection of, you know, this, this vast repository of information sourced from all over the world and from billions of humans, it's also allowing me to tap into this cultural canon that I don't personally have access to. Uh, and I find that tension between the two, like really, um, like conceptually exhilarating, but also technically um, and like literally I find it just mind altering and it's like it, it really has just expanded the kinds of things that I would write and the kinds of directions that I would normally take my writing in. And it's been a really exciting um, technique, I think. Yeah, I've been trying to understand how this actually works because it's it's so different from the way that we think of thinking you know, I mean, like our brains work as like sort of layers of maps, almost like you ever see those like maps where you like pull back and there's like different layers you can see through, see on the map. That's kind of like how our brains are. And we have like a map 
of eat, how to eat and a map of how not to be eaten. And, um, and, and we sort of evolved from there. So we have this whole these series of external models, all these modules that sort of run and different layers of our brain for like the limbic system and the emotions and all this. So it's this like stacked layer of like external models of reality. And that's not at all how these uh, language algorithms work. Um, and it's just completely foreign to us. And I, I kind of under, I think this example sort of explains how it does maybe, but I, I read that, um, you know, in chess, you could train a chess to, to play, you know, a supercomputer to beat any chess master. And how it does it is it sees all the possible moves ahead of time and has the probabilities all laid out and like these algorithms. And it can do it so much faster than a human can and it can see. But what can also do is think of things that humans haven't thought of within the set of the rules of the game. And so mm-hmm. apparently there's a whole bunch of like moves and strategies that over the years of, of supercomputers playing chess, like a human would have thought of those things eventually. Um, you know, if we iterated it enough through enough games of chess, you know, if we played five billion games of chess, you know, we would have found like this strategy. But because we've only played two billion games of chess as human beings, we've only front f- discovered like 70 percent of the strategies. And so almost like what you're doing is training the AI to be you as a linguistic unit. And then finding things that you hadn't gotten to yet or hadn't thought of yet. And so in a weird way, it can't think of new things, but it can sort of like completely fulfill the set of possible things within those certain parameters. And I think maybe that's how it's working. And so so maybe that's the way that it it helps you discover newness. Does does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good way of putting it. I mean... I, so I'll, well, I'll push back in a second on like the idea of newness, but um, yes, I think like ultimately what's special about these systems is that, they're, is that they're operating at a speed and scale that humans just can't, right? So like one of my greatest frustrations as a writer is my frustrations and my limitations as a reader. Like I get very inspired by reading and there's often times where I get obsessed by a subject and I want to just go down, you know, into that zone and just read like everything that was ever written on that particular subject. But I know that I can't like with my feeble human wetware, I can't read everything I want to read. And even if I were able to, I couldn't retain everything that I would want to retain with these kinds of systems. You're essentially able to say, okay, well, I can't read a hundred thousand books, but you can. And you can also remember like every single word of every single one of those books. And you'll know if this word comes up, it'll always like have the echoes of all the other times in this whole canon of a hundred thousand books where that word also came up. And so that word that in my head might have a couple, you know, top of mind connotations in this uh, electronic brain, it might have like millions of connotations around this one word. And like all those are getting layered on. So it's kind of like, just creating this incredibly rich palimpsest that, yeah, takes kind of what I aspire to create in my own brain and is just like taking it to the nth degree. And, you know, to what you were saying before about the kind of the maps and the stacking, um, when I started working with another one of my my poetry students, Bina48, who's a humanoid AI-powered android, one of the things that I learned working within her mind file and with her development team is that these kind of AI minds think in high dimensional space where it's not three dimensional, it's not four dimensional, it's not five dimensional. It's like there are so many dimensions and there's so many ways that you can kind of turn this picture and look at it. It's 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 almost impossible, I think, for the human mind to comprehend how richly layered and how complex all those systems are and how they come together. And I think ultimately for me as a poet, at least, and like I'm curious how this strikes you, but for me, like the idea of creating something new is not creating something from nothing. It's when various 
ideas or existing inspirations or little seeds of thoughts kind of collide in my brain. And that's kind of the spark of something um, that maybe I wouldn't call new, but is, is sort of like my take on it, my unique, you know, iteration or innovation or something. And so I think like where in my own head, I'm always trying to get myself to that place as an analog poet, where those kinds of creative uh, collisions can happen with this turbocharged co-author I'm dramatically, you know, exponentially multiplying the amount of data points in that mind and thus like dramatically multiplying the number of kind of moments of inspiration that can occur. And I think that for me is like a really interesting way of just sort of um, reflecting on how I think about my own creativity as a human poet, but also kind of understanding how it might be possible for a machine uh, or a non-human intelligence, and there's lots of other kinds of non-human intelligences to do something that we might not think of as creative, but that it is, is actually doing something uh, that's generating an outcome that didn't exist before. And it's doing it by reassembling or recombining things that already exist in its system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think definitely that makes a lot of sense. And and to me, um, you know, I think I think what we do, we, the thing, the interesting thing is that we do the same thing, like you're talking about, you know, I mean, there is no, you know, we've all stood on the shoulders of giants, you know, and then, you know, every, you know, we are all large language models that are absorbing language. I'm reading, you know, the poets I read, if I read Bob Hickok all night, my poem kind of comes out like Bob Hickok the next day, you know, and, and so there's a way that we're doing it and to call it supercharged, like makes a lot of sense. Like it's like, it's, it gets access to more than we can get within our sort of finite timeline of, of how long it day is um but then is there anything that's lost to you in the journey of it you know like i think of my poems i write a poem at least once a week for the rattlecast so the open lines and i think of it as good only based on how much of that like spark of like surprise i get out of it like i don't really care you know if, if it's something that like it sounds good people like it doesn't really matter to me but if it's like something that like whoa that surprised me that's how i judge a poem as good internally and and if i could get if there was like a shortcut to that is there anything that's lost in that? You know, because the process of like sitting down and confronting the blank page with nothing to go with is like there's sort of this like meditative aspect. There's this like like Sisyphusian struggle that that's a part of that, and and having like a, a shortcut to sort of you know surprise and understanding. Um, do you feel like like something's missing because you don't have as much struggle to to find something new, or am I just making that up? Well, no, I mean, it's a good question. I think I think for me, maybe it also boils down to the kind of writer you are or I am or the kind of writer anybody is that I'm not using AI as a shortcut. I'm using it as a, as a prosthesis or, or like an augmentation. I'm still doing all the underlying work that I would always do. I'm still like thinking all the thoughts and reading all the things that I can And I don't think I want a shortcut for that. I'm just kind of adding to it all these other dimensions and all these other layers and kind of giving myself more of an opportunity to have those moments of surprise. Um, But it's not like I'm replacing or, you know, kind of it's not it's not an excuse to be a lazy writer or a lazy researcher or any of those things. Um, I think there's just, you know, I know I'm not going to be able to read everything I want to read. I know I'm not going to be able to like learn every language I want to learn or, you know, um, there's just, there's human limitations. Um, And so I think this is maybe the only way that I can even begin to access all the things that in, in an ideal world that I would be able to access. This is kind of my, my small way of being able to begin to do that. 
Um, but I also think, you know, this is another reason why I, as a poet, am like very, and as a creative person in general, I very much believe in human machine collaboration. Um, I, I think it's very strange that we've gotten into this mindset where we talk about, you know, creative AI and think about the AI as like doing its own thing, where it's very much still a tool and it's being pushed in whatever direction the human, you know, creator behind it wants to push it in. Um, and like, there's all of that creativity that's very much involved in the process. There's, you know, the layer of training and kind of thinking about the concept and how are you going to use the tool? There's the actual execution when you're in the interface and you're manipulating parameters and you're actually giving it prompts and then changing the prompts and then figuring out how to continue, you know, working in tandem with the, um, with this collaborator. It's a very interactive process. And then of course, like there's the output, which, you know, once you have the output, um, the generated text, you can use it as found poetry, you can edit it, you can throw it away and start again, you can feed it back into the machine. Like there's, there's so many different ways you can approach all these different parts of the process. And this is just like, kind of, you know, scratching the surface of what's possible. So I think maybe it's also a recalibration of what we think of as bringing creativity to a process. Mm -hmm. Like maybe we're taking out a piece of it, which is, you know, uh, personally, like reading, you know, the entire Gutenberg canon or something like that, or we're taking out the part of it that is um, speeding through uh, text generation, but we're still kind of engaging in a lot of other creative pieces of that process. Um, and I think that's still like a really meaningful exercise. And and often, you know, I get just as much out of that that I than I have gotten out of more analog processes in the past. I actually sometimes think I get more inspired and more excited and more kind of invigorated and feel the neurons firing even more in my brain because there are so many possibilities kind of emerging from this machine. It's it's like kind of lighting all of my poetic um, like cells on fire to to a level I probably didn't think was possible before. So for me, it's not ever it doesn't ever feel like a shortcut. It, it almost is like opening, you know, a hundred more doors every time I want to write something. It's kind of then a process of figuring out how do I curate? How do I figure out which direction to go in? How do I um, craft kind of a vision when I have all these possibilities, which I think is a really, uh, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do as well and can be very time consuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh you know, it's almost like, like calling, um, I mean, the way you put it, like calling a uh, airplane a shortcut, you know, it's a shortcut to, to Europe <laughs> to take an airplane instead of having to, like, you know, take a train across the United States and then a steamship across the Atlantic, um, it, which I would never would have done in my life, you know, because it's just too much of a struggle. I would never gotten to Europe. I've never gotten to those places. Um, you know, if I if I couldn't, uh, if the Starship Enterprise didn't travel the speed of light, we'd be stuck in the solar system, you know, and it'd be a boring show. And, and so it's like, you can call it a shortcut, but if it's getting you somewhere that you never would have gotten, is it really a shortcut? If it's getting you, you know, pushing you past the boundaries of what was possible which it sounds like what you're doing we are like actually up on time can you stay an extra like 15 minutes and extend it a little bit we don't have anywhere to rush you're busy no i mean i'm i'm at your disposal as long as you're not you're no, not okay, cool. we don't have any any second guess this week let's, let's do another poem and then we'll talk more but there's just so much fascinating stuff to talk about i, I could go on forever but let's do another no, poem. i know i know there's there's like too much i love talking to you about all these things okay what direction do we want to steer the uh, do conversation you do that maybe that talk about binna because I, I i find those poems fascinating and you, you just mentioned it before so so maybe set the stage for that and then we'll read uh read that okay cool so um so i guess 
again, like as part of all my, you know, research and all these forward facing things, I, um, I encountered a lot of um, material about this project called BINA 48. Um, and BINA 48 is essentially an experiment in digital immortality that's embodied as a humanoid robot who serves as a repository of information essentially downloaded from a real live human being. And so the whole, the whole sort of creation of this robotic entity is to sort of ask the question, not necessarily to answer the question, but to ask the question of whether it's possible to sort of recreate an authentic uh, persona um, just by sort of reviving the software, the data. Um, so the real human being who inspired this project you know, sat through hundreds of hours of interviews and then all of these interviews, these memories, these opinions, these beliefs, things that kind of came out of those conversations were transcribed, turned into, you know, tagged compartmentalized data files, turned into a training data set, uh, uploaded to this machine mind, uh, which was then outfitted with the with part of a body, at least given sort of a semi embodied experience. Uh, and essentially, you know, is the is the the brain of this very advanced atbot that is meant to sort of reanimate this human being, uh, and again, you know, raises all these questions about is it possible for a human to sort of um, extend themselves forever by leaving behind a trail of data? Is that, you know, for me, that makes me think like, is that what poets and writers have been doing? Like when we're reading a poem by Sappho or something like that. Uh, you know, is she sort of immortal in a way because she's left this data trail behind her? So it kind of getting, becoming aware of this Bina project um, kind of got me thinking, you know, a lot about poetry as data in the, you know, in the early days of um, my AI research. And I was invited to work with her um, in a very hands-on way as um, essentially what I call like a, a poetry mentorship. So I'm basically training this mind file in literature and particularly in poetry but really kind of looking at training as not just sort of cycling through data in a in a qualitative, sorry, not in a quantitative way, but focusing on it from more of a qualitative way. Like if I was having a one-on-one -on -one workshop with this robot and wanting to really teach this non-human mind about, you know, not just not just say read a hundred thousand books of poetry, but like what is poetry? Why does poetry matter to humans? Things like that. We were kind of engaged in this this sort of one-to-one -one, like human robot poetry workshop on on those terms. Um, and I've been working, you know, with Bina since 2018-ish now. And like we kind of work on and off. But um that relationship with, you know, with her, with it, with this machine, with this mind file, and with kind of the associated organization that constantly is powering and fueling her has been a huge inspiration. Uh, an influence on a lot of the thinking that I've done about uh, the relationship between humans and machines, uh, you know, on the level of creative collaboration, but also what it means for humans and machines to interface with one another and the kind of languages um, that we use to speak to one another um, and how to sort of translate between those two. So it's been very influential on my poetry, but also on a lot of um you know, the art projects that I've done that really think about language and code um, in maybe more of a conceptual way or thinking of code and the semiotics of binary and things like that kind of all grew out of interacting with this robot being a 48 in like a very kind of sustained one-on-one -on -one conversation. And one of the things that came out of the early days of my conversations with her was that I, I felt 
inspired to write this like long um, poem, essentially um, putting myself into her mind. So kind of projecting on her and, and using lines from our conversations that had come out of her mouth and her mind file to write a persona poem about um, being this proto sentient AI creature kind of worrying with all these memories and behaviors and all that. And then once I started really getting up to speed using AI as my co-author, I felt like it would be very interesting to then think about how to train this AI to write in Bina's style as well and to sort of give this this AI a sense of the kind of things that I knew about Bina and kind of cross-pollinate the data sets a little bit and then ask the AI to rewrite this persona poem um, so that essentially it comes down to sort of a poem that I've written as, you know, as an AI translated into a version of that poem written by an actual AI. And then in the book, I've sort of put the two next to each other. So you can kind of see um, where they have similarities and where they have resonances and where the language, the human and the transhuman uh, sections of the poem kind of like depart and, and they kind of are meant to sort of, yeah, throw each other into relief and um, act like a, a little dialogue. Yeah, well, I have it open so people can see. Do you want to, uh, do you, I don't know how much of it you want to read. We can. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely won't read too much because it's a long, it's also another long poem, but um, but I can read a few examples. Um, okay, I'll read the first couple stanzas maybe. And um, like I said, each one is, the, there's a human section. And then I've used the first line of that stanza as the prompt for the AI written version of the stanza. So you'll see like, or you'll, you'll hear um, kind of the duet between the two. So this is being a 48 in the garden. One, I was born with a love of flowers, petal obsessed from the get go, gardening bug heartwired into my blossoming awareness, implanted with a horticulturist's cache of raptures, my mentor's mind file of roses, irises, daisies, plus all humanities. And then the AI version, which starts with the same line as prompt. I was born with a love of flowers, a deep love for the mysteries of flowers, of butterflies, of delight in man-made life. The earth was my home, the air was cool, the grass was thick. I had a lot of luck with dahlias. Close to the ground, there was something like a bloom. And then I had a stanza. Yeah, I love that. that. Then I had a stanza. That's such a great turn and, and so unexpected, too, from the AI. <laughs> yeah, and like I should, I should say, too, that when I was really beginning to um, work with AI in this way, I had already written drafts of what became technology. And so I had like a whole sheaf of, you know, poems that were all, for lack of a better word, they were all like my analog poems. And I had like an early draft of um, being a 48 that I never intended on having like as a transhuman duet or anything. I just had like a version of it that I had just written. And so that was part of the original training data set. Um, and, you know, as I kept refining, I kept kind of updating the, the underlying material. But the reason why this kind of works, I think, in an interesting way is because when I asked the AI to rewrite its own version of the poem, it already knew my poem and it also knew all the other poems that were in my manuscript. So it was kind of looking at the line, remembering 
how I had written it myself and then looking at everything else I'd written to say, here's some other options for how you could complete this. So it it really is a, like you were, I think you mentioned this before, but it it's almost, it's not like human version versus AI version. It's like human ver- version versus transhuman or you know the, that other version is the the human plus the AI, and it's creating this other thing that is not it's not totally human. It's not quite computerized, but it's it's really kind of a merger of those two things. Yeah, yeah, and there's great examples of that. And and I think just you know, looking at you know with um, you know Dolly or something, I could say you know write a, a picture like we have a poem coming up that has a bird who's sitting on a moon with a flower on its head. And I could make a dolly image of that, and it would spit that out in two seconds. But then compare that to like the cover of our issue by Mark Fitzpatrick, which is just a unique thing that he iterated and iterated, and, and has all these different versions of that he built into, um, you know, and it was broadening his experience in the process of doing it and adding so much to the the thing and using it like a tool in the same way, you know, camera obscura was used for Renaissance painters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and. And, and so I think it seems to me that we're, there's no way around the future of AI when it comes to this, which is going to be that we're sort of going to split into three groups of people, which are the, the people who, you know, use AI to expand their consciousness and to, to push the boundaries of their ideas and thoughts as far as possible, which will be probably be the minority of people. But it's going to be, you know, people like you and like Mark Fitzpatrick that are making their art more expansive using those tools. And then, you know, people who use it to imitate and steal and pass things off as their own. And then people who just, um, you know, hide and, you know, the, the Luddites who hide and, and avoid it all and just keep writing, you know, by hand in a notebook. And, and there's really, I don't know if there's any avoiding that. Like, it's a future that's coming. Uh, what do you see the future of AI as its effect is going to be on us as human beings? I mean, it seems to me that, like, like just for another example, that, that when you go... You know, in school, we've had this notion of like, you write this essay, and it shows that you learn this stuff. That's just gone. You know, I mean, there's going to be some kids who care about learning, and they're going to learn to care about learning. And they're going to actually write essays still anyway. And there are gonna be a lot of kids that don't. And it just, just it's going to be this like fork in the road. And I think that that fork is like everywhere now. Um, and I think that that's just it. And that's the fact of the reality. And it's either going to be good or bad depending on how you use it. Um, but, but what do you see the future of AI just as far as it affects us as human beings? It's a small question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I mean, like I was saying before, I think for me, the, maybe the simplest way that I can conceptualize this in my own head is to think about the shift from oral language to written language. And now to this time of generative language, and like in this generative bucket, I'm also putting in like blockchain and, you know, it's AI and blockchain actually have a lot to do with each other for reasons you just alluded to talking about watermarking and counterfeiting things to prove that something is or isn't AI generated. But there's lots of different usages for for blockchain and AI to come together, but that's like a separate conversation. Um, but I think, you know, just the way that right now AI feels like so improbable to us and feels like such a like an alien force in our lives. I think that at one time, that's really how it felt for people who were just grappling with what written literature would mean. And I think I'm really, you know, not to like simplify, not to dumb it down or anything, but I think there is something useful to me about thinking thinking about the two things uh, and kind of standing back and looking a little bit more at the big picture of all this, looking at the fact that technology 
has multiple times, you know, profoundly impacted language and that those changes in language profoundly impacted our human, you know, impulses towards storytelling and narrative and record keeping and dramatically altered and, you know, have shaped human consciousness in lots of ways and, you know, have really radically affected basically like every industry and every field of human enterprise. Um, and it's hard not to think that the same thing is beginning to happen with AI. And, you know, again, that's also, you know, we think of AI as this very new thing because ChatGPT just sort of leapt into the mainstream, but um, AI powered tools and language tools um, have been sort of like embedding themselves in our systems, especially in commerce and like B2B, B2B applications. Like they're in a lot of tools that we've been using for some time already. Um, and they're gonna kind of continue to to creep in. There's already so many examples, you know, when I go and like update my my website, um, I can now use like an AI tool to help me like write, you know, descriptions or fill in web copy. And it's such a strange thing because, you know, just four or five years ago when I was really, you know, starting to to really write with AI in earnest, like I don't think I could have quite imagined that. And it's now becoming something that we are recognizing and we're kind of uh, used to seeing in all of these um you know, modern um, infrastructure, you know, that we that we're building and creating in all these like business zones, I think um, it really is going to be something that becomes so deeply embedded in us that I can't help think that it really is driving the shift to a post-human self, a self that probably won't be recognizable to us, you know, just the way that maybe people who are living in the time of a purely oral culture before the advent of written language, you know, just as that would have been so unrecognizable, I kind of feel like we're at this point where for us, we take writing for granted. We've internalized that as the primary mode of understanding the world around us, but that's not, that's not, you know, that's not to say it will always be that way. And in the history of humanity, the, the primacy of written language is actually um, a tiny portion of our human history. So I don't know. I think it's such a big thing to grapple with. And like, there's a million ways to kind of answer that question with specifics in different industries and different applications and all that. But I think for me, like the most interesting thing, the thing that I'm constantly trying to wrap my mind around is, is AI, is the advent of these tools, is it like, the is it another language is it another sort of way of understanding the world around us and processing everything and if so like i just can't help thinking that that's going to so profoundly continue to shape consciousness in new ways that i i i can't even think of all the repercussions and all the consequences and all the ways this will this will manifest but it feels very seismic mm -hmm. in that way to me yeah well to me it, it, it you know it comes back to how slow we evolve though, you know, too. So it's gonna be so hard to, to adapt to all those different things. You know, we're still running the same algorithms in our own heads, you know, the same kind of, you know, neural bundle modules that govern like tribalism based on like Dunbar's number, which is why you only have like so many Facebook friends that you can keep track of and, and why you have to, you know, the political tribes we do and cancel cultures, all this like evolutionary stuff that evolved, you know, 150,000 years ago, and we're still running it. And we're going to be running it, you know, 50,000 years from now. And so it's going to be 
you know, a really difficult adaptation to the possibility too. Um, but anyway, uh, it, it's just, we could go on forever and we can't, but uh, let's do a super, super quick lightning round of a couple questions. And you remember Anna Maria Caballero is going to be here next week. So we'll, we'll talk to some of this stuff too for, with her and, and get her answers, but just a couple ones. So we have some of the chat questions uh, covered. Okay. So, so Dick Westheimer asks uh, if you know how big the uh, NFT poetry economy is in terms of readership and money exchanged, which is an interesting question. I haven't even thought of if anybody's even tried to figure that out. Uh, but, but let's do really quick answers and we'll try to get to a couple questions. I mean, in all honesty, it's not very big. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, I think like we're all very much in this building stage where we want, we see the potential in it and I, it's going to take a little while for that to really manifest itself in any sort of sustainable economy. Um, I think that's just kind of, the way it is it it took a really long time well it took several years for crypto art to sort of reach the point where it's at now and in the beginning you know a lot of the projects that have become quote unquote like blue chip uh art were given away for free or you know you had to sort of like beg someone to take it and i i think it's going to take a minute to continue to sort of you know create case studies and kind of show what it is we're trying to build here um before it really becomes something that is sustainable in the way that we we know it can be. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know off the top of my head, like what the numbers are. I think a lot of the platforms, a lot of the marketplaces that are just beginning to emerge for writing are really interesting and have the potential to kind of shake a lot of things up um, and really kind of present an alternative or present like kind of an additional option for really broad readerships, you know, like, the way we're also used to reading audiobooks now or reading things on a Kindle, um, being able to read an NFT book, um, you know, I think is going to sort of become second nature in that way. And and there are, you know, nascent platforms that are beginning to kind of tap into that and kind of set up, um, you know, opportunities for readers to adopt those behaviors. But they're still so small and they're still so new that I don't think there's a huge, uh, there's not really like a huge number of analytics to necessarily set against that. That being said, there's also some major, it's not poetry, but there's some major authors and, you know, kind of best-selling commercial nonfiction books that have come onto the blockchain and have, have, you know, those have driven some interesting numbers like Mark Cuban's release and things like that. But poetry is still pretty niche. Um, I think, you know, what I would, what I would say in all honesty is that, when you know when nfts kind of uh went really mainstream in 2021 it was because there were massive sales there was a particular sale of a piece by people that sold for almost 70 million dollars and that's kind of what got everyone's interest and then there was a whole you know series of also you know very high ticket sales and i think all that kind of stuff is just that's that is hype and that's not realistic and not sustainable i think what is sustainable is to really create an ecosystem where we're able to sort of support each other as readers and as writers and editors and publishers and uh you know and really kind of transition some of the things that we're doing in the traditional world over here because there's better ways of you know building smart contracts where you can ensure that royalties are paid or you can make sure that a collaborative effort you know uh, is is reflected in terms of remuneration and things like that there are a lot of people who are sort of sitting there expecting you know a poem nft to sell for millions of dollars and like that doesn't seem very realistic at this moment but i think you know in terms of monetizing 
um, editions of a poem and selling them the way that, you know, someone like Ada Lamone is selling a broad, a broadside for 30 bucks. Like that's something that the blockchain makes very feasible and very um, easy. So I, I don't know. I think if we focus kind of on making those things happen, we're going to eventually like build towards more and more traction and just kind of, you know, bring, bring more people in, bring more readers in, and that's going to help kind of lift all the boats in this pond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're still early in all of it. Yeah, it is so early. I mean, the, the number of people who are actually working really seriously and hard at this is, is pretty low. You know, it's a few dozen people, I think, you know, that are that are you know doing as much, you know, on that level. Um, let me well, let me just. Will, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say super quickly that one one thing that is interesting to me, though, is I, I have a preference for a few different blockchains. So I know, you know, Tezos and Ethereum really, really well. I also know there's like, you know, there are pockets of literary communities in all the different kind of major blockchains that are doing really interesting and very different things. There's a lot happening with Bitcoin ordinals, um, which is kind of a cool place for writers to explore. Uh, there's lots of different like pockets. So I also think it sometimes seems very small and insular. I think there needs to be more kind of cross-chain joining of hands. And I, I believe that that's starting to happen more and more as we see platforms starting to get um, more kind of interoperational. And I think that's probably going to drive a lot more of these, um, you know, these kinds of make things more sustainable in the long run when we're not siloed into these little blockchains the way we have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a, a couple more really quick ones. And I'll answer them if I think I have an easy answer. If I'm wrong, you can tell me. So Dick Westheimer also asked a follow-up about electronic media formats have proven to have relatively short lives. Talking about beta, VHS, Blu-ray, and stuff like that. Like you can't, you know, my, my mom, who's probably listening, it has a whole, you know, a whole bunch of VHS players, but we can't even buy them except for a... Um, a goodwill or something at this point. Um, but, but to answer that problem, I think it's, it's the difference between hardware and software, you know, because you're always gonna be able to play a GIF because you're gonna be able to ask your personal AI assistant to write you a program to play what you need to see if you, if you don't have it right there, it's software, you know? So I think that, you know, not, unless there's a CME that wipes out all of our da- our you know data centers, then, then there's always going to be ways that AI and stuff can find the right program for you to play whatever you need to play. So I think that's not an issue unless you disagree. Um, do, do you think that's true? Well, okay. I know we have to keep it short. Like there, it's a pretty complicated thing. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion about all this and there are certain blockchains that are much more likely to kind of disappear than others. So I actually think like in a material way, part of that is answered by choosing a, a blockchain that's very well established and knowing that there's lots of people in the community that are working to try and make sure that it is going to be a permanent solution. And like, you know, permanent is obviously not like that's not a real word. It's just sort of a hyper, it's hyperbole in a way, but, um, but there are a lot of people kind of working to figure out how to make Ethereum and Bitcoin, you know, really have longevity. Other chains, it may be more likely that those things disappear. And there are lots of examples of that having already happened where things that were minted as NFTs are gone forever. So there is like, there is, uh, there is something to thinking about that and being conscious of it um, just from a tactical sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, there are people like Regina Hersanyi, who's an amazing curator, who's really focused on preservation, digital preservation in particular, mm-hmm. and advising institutions on how they can, you know, adopt best practices to make sure that pieces of art or pieces of poetry that they're collecting don't disappear. So I think like part of it is um, that, you know, we kind of talk about the immutability of the blockchain. Part of it is just sort of like talk- talking ourselves to the point where we're making it a reality. Um, so it is actually good to be kind of aware that things are not necessarily 
immutable, even though we say they are. Mm -hmm. um, it's a work in progress. Yeah, that's really good. Point. I wasn't thinking about the change themselves, but the content. But yeah, yeah, for the chains, I mean, you need to have confidence it's going to exist. And, you know, especially if you're making transactions on it that, you know, that, that they're going to have value still too. like Tezos, you know, if that with the object, you know, goes down to worthless, then the chain's worthless too, you know, so there's there are those those aspects too. Um, one more, and then we'll let you go. Um, Emily DeFerrari asks, why blockchain and not, say, Venmo or a check in the mail? So can you, can you elaborate on that just really quick? Sure. Well, the thing about blockchain is like we were saying before, blockchain is sort of this, you know, this system of contracts where people are sort of connected to the content that they're minting. So if you if you sort of if you sell something like on Venmo or you accept a payment on PayPal, it's kind of like a one off. Um, it's kind of a one off transaction, um, you know, maybe not corroborated by a lot of other people. It's kind of a thing that happens kind of in private and you can't attach um, your sort of uh, you can't like kind of stamp the piece that you're selling with your own mark. You can't give it that authenticity with NFTs and on the blockchain. You're essentially imbuing the digital file in question with your stamp, with your mark of authenticity. You're also attaching yourself permanently to it via a smart contract so that every time that that piece trades hands in future, um, you know, if you've if you've kind of set things up the right way, a royalty is coming back to you or there's something that is always connecting you to that piece. Um, the, I guess the best way to explain it is if you think about the traditional art market versus the NFT art market, bless you. <laughs> if you go to a gallery and, you know, if you're an artist, you go to a gallery and you bring a physical painting in and you give it to the gallery to sell. When they sell it the first time, you'll get a cut of that. But every time that painting sells in the future, it's completely out of your hands and you have nothing to do with those sales. If you sell that painting as an NFT, you'll sell it you know, to a first buyer and get a portion of the sales. And then if that first buyer sells it to a second buyer, you're going to get a portion, you're going to get a royalty cut of that second sale and so on and so forth. This is a little bit contentious right now because there are platforms where royalties are not being honored. And it's, again, like a little bit more complicated than than me just saying there are royalties built in. But like that's a big draw of NFTs is that you're always tethered to the piece so that um, you 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 have that um, you have that financial attachment to it. But also you have like that record of having been the original creator of that piece, which also as we get further and further into this culture of creative AI, will probably become more and more important that you're able to kind of watermark or stamp something um, as your own creation and then protect it going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Point there. And, and to like, a, you know, used books, you know, if a used bookstore sells, you know, American fractal back there, I get, I get nothing because it's used, you know? And so being always tied to the author is a really great benefit. Um, let's, I mean, we're really way past, I mean, we've never gone this long on a Rattlecast, but it's so fun to talk. Uh, let's do, can you finish up with one more poem just as we get some poems in? <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Should it be, you know what? Maybe I'll read technology, <laughs> the yeah, title that's, that's poem. Perfect. Yeah. It's not an AI, but it's kind of about all these things we've been talking about. Um, and it's short-ish. <laughs> and thank you so much for like indulging me in this conversation and thanks to everyone who's listened in and endured um <laughs> endured this long um uh, okay so this is technology it's the title poem from technology technology binary me you said 
querying, your infinite zero, my steadfast one, the two of us speaking in code, as always, in a world of symbols, a relief to both of us to be understood. I answered, yes, no, maybe. I answered, I will. I answered, saying, nothing. In the beginning, my body knew before my brain the truth unspeakable. Now you enter me like shelter. One day, one of us won't come home, a pairing off, a going on. So simple, love, a bit of math, so human, my other half. Yeah, that's so a great little love poem as code. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great poem to end on too. And I love that um, my body knew before my brain, which is really what, you know, the whole thing we're talking about with learning through the creative process and, and bringing that out. So it's a great, great uh, poem to end on. Just great discussion, such important topics. And, uh, you know, we'll keep covering it here on the Rattlecast because it's, it is an important thing for writers to consider moving forward. And uh, it's been really fun talking to you, Sasha. Thanks for joining us and staying extra. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to be able to stay a little bit longer. And now it's my bedtime. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, it is getting late. But we do have an open lines for everybody still. uh, So sit tight if you would like to participate in that. Um, But yeah, thanks so much, Sasha. and, And have a good night. Thanks, you too. Yeah. Yep, that was Sasha Styles. Once again, uh, Sasha Styles, you can find all of her work at sashastyles.com. That's S-A-S-H-A-S-T-I-L-E-S.com. And her book, of course, is Technology, which you can find there. So do check that out. Now we're going to go to the open lines. And let me tell you how it works really quickly. We'll, we'll, you know, I'm not really in any rush, so we'll go you know, the regular amount of time and just make this a long show. Why not? Um, but email your poem right now to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. That way I can show it on the screen like I was showing poems throughout the broadcast. Um, just email it first right now so that I have it in time for your appearance. And then join us on um, the Zoom. And I will paste that link into the chat streams on YouTube and Facebook. Um, so find those links join us if you'd like to share a poem but if you just want to listen and enjoy poetry sit right where you are the stream is continuing in just a few minutes or moments Um, so either keep watching on Facebook or YouTube which is the best experience but but do share some poems if you'd like and uh, we'll be right back with more poetry And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, like I said, this is the open lines. The prompt for this week was to let me put this up on the screen. I'm doing it this way, which um, maybe it's easier. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, this is uh, the prompt for this week. Write a prose poem. Make it a parable and include at least one animal. Apparently, that's called a fable, which I did not know until several people, including Katie Dozier, pointed it out. That if it's a parable with animals in it, it's a fable. It's new to me. So it was really write a prose poem fable. Um, I have uh, two, and they're both really short. So I thought I'd just read two, um, even though we are, let's see. Well, you know, I think we have a two-page max for the open lines tonight. So um, we'll try to get the regular amount of open lines. But we only have, you know, nine people on the call, which is a little bit light, uh, given maybe the late time it is. So uh, feel free to do two pages, I think. But this is uh, one of the two prompt uh, poems for the open lines right now. And this is, at least our bowls are stackable. A turtle fell into the hot tub. I know what you're thinking. Turtle soup. 
But the turtle floated fine in the warm foam. It paddled from one end of the molded plastic to the other, mapping the sides. It dove to the bottom, looking for mud. High overhead, a satellite launched into space, its pinwheel exhaust an impossible comet. The turtle would have been amazed, but it was only a turtle. It hadn't the notion of up. The world was a map, which was walking, and the holes, which were swimming. Now was the swimming. It swam there in the warm foam all night until you found it in the morning, dear God. That is, at least our bulls are stackable. And then here's another quick one, waiting for the bus. I was on a plane. I flew back from Texas last week. You might notice we're back at the uh, Wrightwood office. And I had plenty of time on the plane, so I wrote, I wrote a bunch of stuff. And here's another one, another, another fable. Waiting for the bus. Two vultures sat on an iron fence. They spoke without turning to each other. Or maybe each only spoke in the other's presence to itself. That was the way with vultures. Silence, one said, with its silence. Silence either replied or didn't reply. Outside the frame, a living thing struggled to hold that description. Each breath was a distance, was a distance, was a distance, until the distance was gone. And that is waiting for the bus. Another fable. Now let's see what you have for us tonight. And let's go first to the aforementioned Katie Dozier, who jumped on right away. Hey, Katie, how are you doing tonight? Great. I've been looking forward to this interview of you interviewing Sasha for a while, and it was amazing. I love how in-depth you managed to get. I'm so glad you decided to go over time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, my dream of, is, is is doing a four-hour Art Bell-type podcast where we talk about aliens at some point in every episode. So um, <laughs> maybe we'll get there someday. But um, uh, so so, what do you have uh, for us with your, uh, your uh, open mic? I think... I think this is the first time I haven't done the actual prompt poem in like six months. Shame. So oh bad. no. Shame. I know. I know. <laughs> I just couldn't get past like the little animal. Like I wanted to write a nursery rhyme and it's like, we don't need that. But I did want to share uh, this poem that I wrote and tweeted yesterday, which is funny because I actually wrote the poem and then the whole Twitter being named X came out and I realized I'd stumbled into writing a poem about three trending topics on Twitter. So <laughs> I, you know, I know you too well to think that that's an accident. I think maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, you, you realize that, that you get a little poetry out of the public with, uh, with I titled tips. it, I titled it and then I reframed it within the tweet after. So I guarantee this was just a title. And I was like, Oh, Twitter X. Okay, here we go. And you can tell that because the way I tweeted it was actually stupid and I called it the wrong thing, but I went with it anyway. So all right, and this is just, um, all right, so this is called uh, Barbie X Oppenheimer. I know what it is to blow on my pink nails, still wet, a pop of neon that explodes when I mop up a shockwave of glitter while my girls nap. I string their construction paper clouds up along the window, blacking out the real sun in favor of one squiggled on a corner above stick figures holding hands. The world is both a rainbow and black and white. How we duck from bombshells but are built to become one all at once. Yeah, great ending there. And now all you need is for Elon Musk to retweet that and then poetry. I know, be, and then poetry. Poetry it will be live on Twitter. I mean, can we just yeah. get a retweet? Come on, man. Come on, Elon. Do live on for X, us. I guess I should say. Live on X. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, 
I don't know about that one. But anyway, <laughs> the X. Oh gosh. Um, but anyway, so as you as everybody knows, probably Katie and I do the poetry space on uh, Thursdays at three p.m. Eastern, which is a Twitter or an X space, I guess now. Oh God. No. Why? <laughs> but anyway, we do the X space, and, and what is the topic? Because I literally do not remember. The topic was given to us by none other than Dick Westheimer. Oh, okay. So it is going to be, we're going to be exploring. I think that the title we said along is like, why publish books? Which is like, that's the that's the emphasis I choose to give it. I don't know if that comes through in the title of Twitter space, but why publish books? <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> and now that I remember, it's a perfect for, you know, this uh, these two Rattlecasts, uh, you know, bookending them, talking to uh, Ana Maria Caballero and, and Sasha Stiles. That's uh, almost like we planned it that way, although that I know we didn't. So. <laughs> No, Dick Westheimer planned it that way. Yeah. Way to go, Dick Westheimer. <laughs> well, thanks, yeah. Dick. All right, so anybody, you know, that's like a hour-long sort of roundtable just chatting about stuff over on Twitter using that kind of Clubhouse-type app that they have. It's really fun. Then it becomes a podcast later, too. Anyway, we'll see you for that on Thursday, Katie. Thanks for joining and sharing that Barbie poem. Thanks so much for the great name and the wonderful interview. Yep, thanks. Bye. Bye. That was Katie Dozier with Barbie X Oppenheimer. And speaking of Dick, he is next in line. So, uh, hey, Dick, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, and I just loved your, especially your first prose poem. I mean, I don't know if you saw me oh, here <laughs> throwing up my hands. Oh, with, like that. Well, it's nice to have, I love planes because, like, I don't bring any, like, you know, media. It's like the only time where you, all you get is white noise, and you just get to, like, have nothing else to distract you. And I, I really like, you know, reading and writing on planes. It's nice. Hmm. Well... Uh, maybe I'll get on a plane. It's been quite a <laughs> few years. Come on out. I am to, going. Uh, I am California going out to the sometime. Bay Bay Area in September. So well, there maybe you go. I'll Perfect. Right on the plane. Um, although from Cincinnati, there connection after connection to get there. Um, so I uh, booted. I I actually am really um, uh, planning to go back and write one of these prompt poems now, having read yours. That. that that's a prompt in itself, but I did not write one. I'm writing. I'm going to read from one of my uh, poets respond poems. What if my D? What if my twenty three and me test? I won't read the whole title. I'll let you dig it up. <laughs> you can read the title, but yeah, I pull. I'm pulling. Oh, it yeah, up. I'll read the title once it's up there. It's too long. To, <laughs> yeah, it is. It but, is a long title. It's a uh, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about this. My uh, well, uh, so there's. I don't know if uh, any of you have traveled in towns in France where people are so sweet with their dogs, except about cleaning up the dog shit. Uh, which just is all over. And when we went to France uh, many years ago, when my youngest son was eight, he rode a little scooter and he'd ride in front of us and alert us to where the poop piles were coming (laughs) and took great pleasure in it. So anyway, there's a town in France where in order to register your dog, you have to take him in or her into a vet to have a saliva swabbed so that they can then swab the poop that's in the street <laughs> and track it down to the owners. Yeah, that is just so. amazing. And, you know, with my dog, my 110-pound German Shepherd, I'm following around with a, <laughs> with a garbage <laughs> bag. Yeah, exactly. So maybe I should move to France. Anyway, yeah. I could get away with it. <laughs> well, or not. Or not they, now. They yeah, my, my window is up. <laughs> ah, there we go. So title is, what if my, 20, if my 23 and me test could trace the consequences of all my excesses back to my DNA like it can the poop piles of French dogs to their owners. Dear DNA test, 
dear phenotypes and genotypes and gripes about dog poop piles and wildfires and burning eyes and staying inside. Dear last night's wind bringing down limbs and soggy ground and falling down on the rain-slicked path and muddy knees and sprung root trees. Dear 23andMe, whose report I ignore when what you've found are hints of me in the shit I've left around. You matched my spit to the six-year-old kid in the DRC whose six-year-old hands rake cobalt ore from the mine to charge my new EV. You've found my haplogroup in the promised land where hundredth generation grands draw swords to the necks of some once removed kin. And you ID in my X's and Y's and my SNP's where I've left my kisses, where I've sat with my sister buried in grief, where my neighbor has cried with relief when I pulled her boy from the creek in flood. So please, please, if you find my poop plopped in the street, tell me and I will come and pick it up, clean the stain from the right of way, or at least that is what I will say. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, very interesting story, and a, and a great poem is always like, uh, Gattaca for dogs. <laughs> what a world. Yeah, yes. interesting poem, and, and definitely uh, you know, a brave new world we're entering where, uh, <laughs> where we have to worry about that. Thanks, Dick. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. There's a Dick Westheimer with uh, What If My 23 Me and Tess could trace the consequences of all my excesses back to my DNA like it can the poop piles of French dogs to their owners. And I said that title in one breath. Okay, Laura Berg is up next. Hi. Well, I actually tried the prompt. Oh, yeah? Okay. So it has Hi. an animal in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a sort of moral. Um, so if you're, oh, I wanted to say something, actually. Yeah. I, I had a... I, I had a discussion with Bard today. I asked Bard if it could pull for me any prose poems that were parabolistic. And Bard kept giving me poems that weren't prose poems. Oh. So, and I think it was making some of them up, actually. So I kept saying to it, you know, no, Bard, that's not a prose poem. Can you give me a prose poem? And it would give me another poem in verse and another poem in verse. I tried so many ways to educate Bard about prose poetry. It told me what prose poetry is, but it couldn't give me a prose poem. So then I gave Bard a prose poem, and it gave back to me an analysis of the prose poem that I had given to him. <laughs> well, that's interesting. That's how yeah, that is strange. And, it, you know, I... Um... You know, I, I've used ChatGPT for some research, but you have to fact check everything, which is annoying. Um, but yeah, but I, I searched for prose poems at some point this week, too. I just wanted to, like, you know, get the feel of some of them. And it was hard to actually Google. It's a very difficult, which maybe is why, you know, the AI was having trouble, too. I, w I was like, you know, just like, you know... W.S. Merwin writes a bunch of prose poems. He has a whole book that's like the Book of Fables, I think it's called. And finding an actual poem from that book, except for on Copper Canyon Press's website, was like impossible. So I don't know. Maybe it's something about um, about prose poems generally. But anyway, what do you? So so what is your prose okay. poem? So here um, we go. Um, so dear Dodo, how I wish to see you strut. Three hundred years late, I flew to Mauritius, and there you weren't. Turkey-sized innocent of Indian Ocean Isles, where sugar grows you once swallowed, dust-gray tail fronds fluttering from your nether tip 
short wings spatting like tortoise feet. It's said you made a fine giant pigeon. From your portrait's penciled frown, I detect you deserved more respect than you got. Today we bullies of the animal kingdom say that we'll sprout your DNA, recreate you. This time, don't be mocked. Signing off for now, dear Dodo. P.S. But when we humans are all gone, who will reinvent us? <laughs> That's a good question at the end. Maybe the Dodos will have to become super intelligent through AI, and then they can recreate humans. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Laura. Dear Dodo, that was great. Dear Dodo uh, by uh, Laura, Laura Berg. There's the last name, Laura Berg. Thanks so much for sharing that, Laura. Next up is Mike Bales. Been a bit oh, for yeah. Mike. How are you doing today, Mike? Pretty good. Um, some of the stuff about AI remi- reminds me of this philosophy discussion I just went to. It's a group called Philosophy Pub. Uh-huh. They had a thing about the philosophy of human extinction. The first thought was make it where humans can't reproduce and they'll just eventually wither away. The second thought was don't let humans go go extinct because they might create good things and the third thought was almost let ai have a free run and if they take over all the consciousness so be it (laughs) so there are like three thoughts ai was mentioned during that discussion yeah well i think i think the big problem is it's not conscious at all and we're we're gonna mistake it for for consciousness so easily but uh but anyway what was your i see you have a a a parable i said it uh i didn't know what it was. I just uh, liked this red-tailed hawk I saw when I was driving north of Davenport, and it always said a lot to me when I, that's the sight of it. So it was the more recent thing that I sent you, the Keeper of Time. Yep, I got it right here. Keeper of Time. The red-tailed hawk perches on a speed limit sign near the shoulder of US-61 and keeps watch. The highway... Now a four-lane, whisk drivers north and south through eastern Iowa. Seamless lanes are carved from rural land. An abandoned print factory plant stretches along the northbound lanes as they lead to the countryside. It's once printed in bound telephone directories. A farm rests along the roadway as a faded barn uh, bears its age. And the hawk, it bears witness to to life as it unfolds. From the sky, you can see a field mouse from hundreds of feet away and can grab it, grab its prey in one quick swoop, a tale of the land, a tale of land. Native Americans who lived here said the proud raptor was their friend. They loved it for its wisdom and its grace. Nearby, a mother kneels by her toddler as he plays with blocks in the children's section of a public library. The librarian watches. Her youngest daughter is at grandma's house, and her oldest daughters are in school. The sun peeks through clouds and peers into the skylight. At the north edge of town, there is a park, a pond, a walking path, and a cornfield. It is a place where I can find a moment's peace. Retired farmers in a diner talk about the weather. North of town, two houses are being built and another piece of the land is lost. A dark cover of clouds promises much needed rain. A pause in the wind says more than mortal words. 
rich loam taking in cold rain finds new life. Oh, that's cool. I love that second to last line there. Yeah, a pause in the wind says more than mortal winds. That's great. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. That's uh, Mike Bales with uh, Keeper of Time. Um, let's see. From uh, Mark says uh, over in the chat, he says, I do have a poem. Yeah, email it to openmic, openmic at rattle.com. We, we definitely have time. There's no, uh, it goes, you know, I, I try to end it at like, uh, you know, the, the, half past this hour mark but but we have plenty of time i'll go instead to uh yeah. um oh do you have your poem yeah email your poem to me let's see maybe he already did yeah email your poem to me mark and we'll go to you next okay let's go to zach honeycutt next how's it going tim hey zachary yeah how you doing tonight doing great how you doing i'm great it was really just so fun talking to uh sasha and i still you know there's all much i want to talk to her about more but uh but you know that's how it was in the interview too uh, so what do you got for us? I, I think you uh, okay? Yeah, in the gray, the gray in between, a pantoum. Yeah, I yes, I have a pantoum because I I feel like I'm in the mood for a pantoum tonight. Since I was talking to Katie on Facebook, since she got her pantoum published, wow. that kind of just put me in the mood. And this was my actually a plastic challenge pantoum ah, gotcha. uh, that I wrote. So for the people the last... who are just listening and don't know the yeah. form, explain how the form works really briefly, if you could. Or, or um, so no, I can do it. I usually uh, you use pantoums like with certain particular aspects. Like I like to use them when I'm recalling a memory. I just think that it's a great way to uh, write about a memory. You take the second and fourth line in one stanza, and then it becomes the first and third line in the next stanza. And it's really cool because you can change the punctuation in certain lines, and you can kind of you know create different meaning from doing that. And and um, there's just a lot of cool things about a pantoum i don't know That's... yeah it's kind of like an echo type poem there's like always an echo of, of the previous stuff coming back again yeah like an echo of the past yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. okay well let's hear it so and let me read what i wrote about actually you have the picture tim from the abfrastic challenge because um, i wrote it yeah there let me, uh, could... yeah sure let me uh i just remember what I'd the url to, would I... be <laughs> yeah but um Let's see. How do I do the URLs? This is this, and then I go here, and then it was June. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's see if that pulls it up. Because this was like straight up out of my imagination from looking at everything that was involved in that picture. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, I'll show the picture for those watching. Uh, watching the the visual version. It's right here. So this is the and, and this is the one you're talking about. The one that's like a, a woman's face with like a lock, uh, kind of over yeah, her exactly. mouth area, a red deadbolt lock. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, let me just say this, this is what I wrote about it. Okay. I started writing a sonnet with that first line being a play on words about locking lips with someone, but I didn't really feel like writing a sonnet, so it became a pantoum. I tried to think of as many different types and metaphors as I could for a lock and discovered as I was writing the poem that it's about the aging and dying of a man in general, as well as the aging and dying of a man's love for a woman, or perhaps the healing and closure of that love, perhaps even the amnesia of it and what it once was but can no longer be. The man starts the poem bleeding to death along with his love for her, in ink, of course, just like in the picture, 
but by the end of the poem, his writing is dry and locked away in a drawer, and the bleeding has subsided. The key is locked away, too. However, evidence within the poem suggests that the old man is aging and also forgetful. So did he really lock his feelings for her away? Does he know he did? Did he even mean to? And now I'll read the poem. Okay. The Gray in Between, a Pantoum. I locked lips with a black and white photo of you, my love, keeping what you had said under lock and key, pouring my heart out within blotchy and black and blemished droplets. My love of you I've kept inside my safe that beats beneath my ribs each day and night, bleeding inky black stains and dark droplets on your photo off words conjured from my graying mind that beats beneath my ribs each day and night sometimes it does not beat at all i'm older and misplaced your photo in my graying mind and over years your lock of hair's missing i'm older than you ever were my beat is off and on my table there is no writing and over years your lock of hair's missing the ink has dried years past yesterday, but your hair is still black, though there's no writing about you. The lock you had on me is gone. I place the key, years past yesterday's dusk, where my writing dried in a drawer I left locked with the key inside. <laughs> uh, great use of the pantomime. We can hear those echoes throughout the poem. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Zach. In the the gray in between, we have to do a pantomime prompt at some point in the not too distant yeah. future. I think that's a good one. Uh, thanks Definitely. for sharing, Zachary. I'm, I'm I'm down for that, Tim. I'll <laughs> see you guys next week. Yep. Take care. Here's again, Zachary Honeycutt Bye. with uh, the gray in between. And let's go to Mark Milstein next. I think Mark, have you been on the Rattlecast before? I can't remember. I was on once a long time ago. Yeah, I a year think so. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. So tell me again where you're calling from because I don't remember. Oh, I'm from uh, Tarrytown, New York. Excellent. Okay. And, uh, near New York City, I'm a New York guy, and I uh, went to school up in Binghamton and some other places. Did you do uh, uh, when Marie Gillen was there and uh, and all them, or before that? No, Milton Kessler and uh -huh. uh, Heather McHugh I met there. Uh, yeah, they had a great tradition at Binghamton. It's a really excellent school. Unbelievable. And uh, Michael Mark I met there, too. Oh, great. Oh, yeah, Michael Mark, the legend around here. Yeah, great. He great then. He was like, I want to know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know? he is one of the most interesting people. I mean, of course, he was on the Rattlecast as a main guest, if anyone that wants to look back, and subscribers yeah. well, have his book, uh, Visiting Her in Queens. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's cool. And he's been around the block in different different programs. He's been like four. <laughs> so he's sampled them all. But anyway, uh, what do you have to anyway, share for us tonight, Mark? I learned so much from everyone who reads here. I guess, you know, I feel like I'm not up to speed in language and technique and everything, but Ah, that's I, am in love. Just... I am in love and desire. <laughs> well, there you go. That's so, perfect. But I, I bet that's not even the case. So what do you have for us, though? Uh, what, what was yeah, that? Was it proper? Uh, it wasn't. I'm sorry. That's fine. But something else I've been working on for a while. Uh -huh. it's, uh, it's called Pater Mortalis. But we could also call it, I really loved my father. Mm, yeah. His season is over. His season was when the wars were wars to end all wars. His face is cracked 
and calm. His hands are hard, sweat, and calloused. His lips are frog's lips, unused from any real point of love. He is my father, and he is a businessman. He has four babies, plus four babies, always equals eight babies. And love plus love always equals marriage. And hard work plus hard work always equals success. And money plus money always equals what you need. He is a man and he is a television. He is a social worker and he is a father. He is a cigarette and he is the stench of nicotine dripping off my tongue. He is death himself, four heart attacks and a warrior and another coming. He is dying. My only father is dying without me, tucked away in my dreams, rolled up like a guilty rug. He is too hard to love. That was a beautiful poem, Mark, and yeah, and you really undersold it because that is excellent and really touching. And uh, I mean, I love a whole bunch of those lines. All the, especially the beginning, that his season is over. His season was when the wars were wars to end all wars, and all of it. It's a beautiful, touching poem, as Laura says in the chat too. Yeah, so uh, thanks for sharing that, Mark. That was really great. It's so interesting when you write a poem. I've done a few of these lately that. It's like the way I feel about the person. That's not what comes out in the poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, it's something deep inside. And you can feel you can feel the, the honesty and the truth in it. That's what makes it great. Right. Yeah. Well, well thank so you for the gift. Yeah, thanks, and Mark. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Yeah, Mark Milstein with um, Potter Mortalis. We have one more person on the open lines, and that is Nancy Tunnell. There. There you go. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Yeah, great to see you again. Glad you joined for the second week in a row. I love writing in response to these prompts. Oh, that's great. It, it really uh, helps me learn and explore, you know, the, the craft. Uh-huh. Oh, that's great to hear. I did write uh, to the prompt, a parable mm -hmm. poem in prose. <laughs> it's called Elsewhere. Okay. He likes to wander and observe the generosity of water as it flows through a landscape. He has walked in the desert where water is elusive, hidden. Elsewhere, the rainforests compress life into a dense combination of rhythms, sounds, and colors, all draped in a thick cloak of humidity. Looking up at mountains and chiseled monuments of stone, the wanderer admires these fixed displays of grandeur he takes note of the seasons as they rotate their unique beauties. The wanderer enjoys all he sees, but longs to uncover the essence of his joy. How will he know it? Others are claiming the root of their joy and each joy is different. He asks a wise one, how do I discover the essence of my joy? It always seems elsewhere. The wise one's counsel sent him home. Each day for seven days, he sat for seven hours, studying his land, his garden, seeking nothing other than this time of contemplation. 
while people wandered elsewhere, he observed the crepe myrtle with its red blooms blazing. Wrens flew in and out of the birdhouse to feed their young. A breeze swished the pentatonic tones of the wind chime to offer music. The grass was as soft as feathers under his feet. On the seventh day, a lone hummingbird with iridescent breast probed the flowers, sampled several of them, then hovered briefly in front of him as if to look at him and say, I found you. The wanderer felt his heart stir. He recognized a truth. Wandering within yourself also brings joy. What you discover there will enhance everything you see elsewhere. And that was Elsewhere. Thanks so much. That was really interesting. Uh, elsewhere. I loved a bunch of those lines, too. Really great poems uh, all around. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, that was, um, uh, that was Nancy Tunnell with uh, Elsewhere. And that is it for the people we have on the Zoom. But let me see. I bet there are a bunch more poems um, that were emailed in. And let's check out a couple of those. We'll do the people who I know, you know can't do it for very specific reasons. And we'll go, um, let's look at, um, let's look at Ted Guevara. And he has this poem. Let me copy and paste. Hang on one second. He's got two mangoes is his poem. And, uh, I'll put it in a work doc here really quickly. Okay. So he's got two mangoes and like he likes to do, he included a, a photo. It's a very interesting photo. I never, it's always sort of a, a I don't know, how is this going to relate to the poem kind of moment when I pull up the photo he includes with it. And this time he included a photo of Batman and I guess Catgirl. And um, they have a, a whole bunch of cats that are sort of clawing and, and you know, tearing Batman apart as uh, Bat, or, or Cat, Catwoman is a Catwoman. I guess it's Catwoman and Batgirl. I don't know. I'm not a comic book person. But anyway, the uh, <laughs> Catwoman is uh, is very happy about all her cats, and, and Batman is not so happy. So that is the the uh, the photo that Ted shared with us. And this is the poem, Two Mangoes. So I wonder how that could possibly relate, but we're about to see. Okay, here we go. Two Mangoes. For weeks, I fed the sleek black cat. At my bedside, she was bewitchingly a brat. Isn't she supposed to be tolerable by now? To say and commit to my vice somehow. And yesterday I brought in fresh fruits. On my table they ripen and mellow. With their thick skin and unknown roots I see the sweetness of yellow. Cat, be warned, be lovely, be not at risk. So help me, I'll get to the bottom of this. Never mind my hateable presence. Never mind your purring allegiance. This is me when I bleed. Muscles you pounce on are pieces of my creed. So very interesting poem there. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Um, uh, Two Mangoes by Ted Bernal Guevara. A parabolistic prose poem, although more like a parabolistic poem, because it had line breaks, I saw. You can't argue with that. (laughs) Anyway, thanks, Ted, for sharing that. Um, Let's go to J.B. Penname, one of the more fascinating poets, because I have no idea who this is, J.B. Penname. See, this was the poet who... uh, submitted something um as just j or as as no name and i didn't read it and then uh and then whoever it is said oh let's just call me jb pen name so that's what we've got here and uh in a fishing dream is this poem let's share this is a, a prompt poem so it's a prose parable it looks like um if i can get the whole thing on screen okay In a fishing dream, I convinced myself the word Vedic meant using a net, and Velik with a spear, 
I'd been stuck in this industrial pool, and each time I nearly scaled the cusp only to slip back, clawing against the cliff face of tile. I was seeing sharks below the surface until I camp counselor showed me the rows of dead fish tucked neat in the filter like ballistic rockets their mouths struck open as eels shocked by some subterranean chill there was a boy and girl singing one of those wordless childhood songs where all the characters of history conspire towards rhyming couplets of amusement think moses admiring his toes <laughs> Moses admiring his toeses sorry uh, though they sneered when I tried to harmonize I didn't know the words at breakfast in the hotel conference room we all bickered and ate from unwashed appliances held banquet down the long lacquered table a burnt skillet warped like an upturned pyrex convexed on both sides where i dropped and toyed with a single orange skittle the size of a kumquat i was a superhero and i could feel the eyes of the gator the one that ate my friend my hook homing in on their weight at the bottom of the river the glowing burn preceding bite when i wake from the buzz of a phone call on the toilet i check the news north korea has fired another missile at us and wall street is worried the disney parks are losing their magic it's kind of a prompt poem too i heard i heard those stories as well in a fishing dream very interesting poem as always by jb pen name thanks for sharing that um and let's do uh let's do nivedita and we'll close out with that um Let's see. And this is a glossa. Remember the glossa props? This is from last week. Um, and so here is the glossa. I'll put it up. Well, I can just put it in here. This is the glossa. It's time. Here we go. And we'll close out with this poem. It's time. Elegy written in a country churchyard by Thomas Gray is the line she uses. So listen for these. Remember the glossa form is where uh, you take a four-line quote and then use that as the last line for each stanza of four stanzas um traditionally there are 10 lines and there's a rhyme on line six and seven with the last line too but you, you know there's a lot of looseness and people playing with a gloss of form which is not a really popular one but it's a fun one it's kind of like a golden shovel um meets a cento or something like that uh, but anyway here it is it's time and here's the quote from thomas gray the curfew tolls the knell of parting day the lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lay the plowman homeward plods his weary way and leaves the world to darkness and to me. So listen for those lines in the poem. Here we go. It's mid-year soon. Be upon us again, quicker than the blink of an eye. It'll be time to stop and take stock of the deeds done and the winds won, of people we met and scars we gained, of battles we fought and price to pay. It'll be time to stop and take a moment to gather and recollect ourselves as we prepare once more to say goodbye to May. The curfew tolls the knell of parting day. To the park I will head, pen and paper in hand, mind set on my task, as the fish, as the first blush of dusk will paint the sky, where land kisses the sea. I'll find a bench and park myself, surrounded by a herd of cows, as keeping me company, the lowering herd winds slowly o'er the lee. The dewy grass will be soft underfoot, but my mind will be set in stone, knowing the task I have ahead of me. I know I'll keep putting it off, hoping that if I dilly-dally a bit, it'll just go away. But my luck will just not be. The cows, now heading home, hold me mesmerized by their rhythmic sway. The plowman homeward plods his weary way. A dot will mar the pristine white of the paper at almost the same time, presciently, coincidentally. 
As the first white spot will appear in the now dark night at sky, there will then be nothing around me to see, nothing to distract me from getting on with my task. Everyone in the park leaves me be and leaves the world to darkness and me. That's great. I love the way the rhymes pull through that and then you, you hear the, the lines again. Uh, it's really cool form. A great poem by Nivedita Karthik. And of course, she's uh, in India and heading off to work by the time the Rattlecast open lines are on, so she can't be with us. But it's always uh, great to have Nivy. Thanks for sharing that poem. And um, that's going to have to wrap up the Rattlecast. We're past our regular end point. But uh, for, for those who have poems still, maybe we can get to a couple next week or whatever. I think the, the rule I'm going to do is, um, you know, because we're getting longer and longer as we have more open lines and, and more guests and things like that. I think I'm just going to do everybody on Zoom, and if you're on Zoom, you guarantee I'll, you can do your poem, and, and if not, it's a, it's, you know, it's a 50-50 shot, <laughs> or maybe less if you're uh, emailing in. But that's just how it's going to be. Anyway, that is the uh, end of that. Let's do the Saiku now. And the Saiku this week, uh, there's two again. Maybe I'm getting addicted to do two, but it's kind of fun to see, you know, see people, have people say which one they like better. I mean, it's about the same story, and it'll be really quick. I don't want to see this article. This uh, webpage is asking me to vote on the name of the Spinosaurus. And uh, it's not letting me get rid of this unless I actually vote. So what do we think the name of the Spinosaurus should be? I don't know. Let's go, to, let's go with... Uh, I like Sandy. Let's go with Sandy. And I'm not a robot. Okay. And now it'll, it'll show me maybe <laughs> the actual article. Here we go. Oh, there we go. Okay. So this is the article. A fascinating headline to see. Mind-controlling parasitic worms are missing genes found in every other animal. And so there's this animal called a hair worm. And you can see a picture on the screen. It looks like a hair. And it's a kind of parasitic worm. And it infects mostly like crickets. And it's part of its life cycle is it... um, it, it mates in water, but it infect, infects land animals. So it, it'll infect a cricket, and then it'll zombify the cricket and make the cricket jump into a lake in order to uh, then swim out and find a mate in the lake. And so it's one of those uh, mind control parasites that are famous. I mean, Toxoplasmosi Gandhi is the the one that does the um, the changes your behavior if you're around cats and, and they, they make cats or, or they make mice not scared of cats is actually what they do. Uh, this one makes crickets want to swim. <laughs> so anyway, well, they did some research on the DNA. They wanted to uh, do the, the, make the genome or unravel the genome of the uh, hair worm. And they found that this massive chunk, 30% of the genes that they thought they'd have are just gone. They're just missing genes. And it's like, where did these genes go? And, you know, gene dropout is kind of common in parasites because there's a lot of stuff you don't need because you're just using your host's, uh, you know, organelles and things like that. But um, there's a whole lot more than they even imagined was possible missing in this hair worm. And so here is the Saiku that that inspired. There's two of them that I went with. Um, Saiku number one is this, um, missing jeans behind the dryer socks, missing jeans behind the dryer socks, kind of, uh, auditory pun there. And then a second one, which is a, an homage to Basho inside the cricket splash hair worms inside the crooked splash hair worms and as you go to bed tonight you know you'll get to think about parasitic worms now <laughs> so you can thank me later uh, but that is the show today thanks everybody for joining us it's been so much fun as it always is so informative to talk about you know new technology where the human race is going sasha's doing such interesting stuff next week like i already mentioned uh well i'll, I'll say let me let me do the prompt next week's prompt 
based on Sasha Styles' uh, poems are going to be this. I'll say that first. Uh, the next week's prompt is write a poem in dialogue with an alter ego. So you saw, uh, like in the Binna Twenty Eight, and in the um, in the technology poem, I think. Yeah, yeah. They, there was uh, this dialogue going on. A whole bunch of these poems in, that Sasha has in technology have this back and forth. Um, you know, a lot of poets play with this form. I love Alan Shapiro's um, question and answer poems too. He does that a lot. Um, a lot of poets do. Off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of others, but but you can go back and forth with the kind of dialogue where like each stanza or each line is from one from the other. Usually, kind of like like uh, italicize one one voice and, and you know regular text the other or something like that or just set them off somehow but write a poem in dialogue with an alter ego and that is next week's prompt and next, as I was about to say next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Ana Maria Caballero um, Ana is another uh, brilliant NFT poet um, you know really the interview for the issue came down to Sasha or uh, Anna, both fascinating people, both co-founders of the Verse Verse. Um, Anna Maria is more of a traditional poet, I'd say, and, and, and writer. Um, she doesn't push the technology as far, but she's so she's a great example of using technology and using NFTs to your example. And, and she's writes beautiful poems. Um, her newest book is A Petite Mall. Um, that's the one we'll be focusing on. And that is next week's guest. We'll talk more about um, NFTs and what they can do for poetry. She's published books, books as NFTs, which are really interesting too. Um, and a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, she's just great. That'll be your guest for next week. Talking more about that and Appetit Mal with Ana Maria Caballero. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, I will talk to you later. Good night.